0: Full access to RFR only on Patreon. Become a member of the RFR Patreon community to get more Rebel Force Radio. Bonus shows and content are available right now only at patreon.com slash Rebel Force Radio.
1: This episode of Rebel Force Radio is brought to you by MeUndies. First-time customers get 20% off their first pair, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. For your discount, go to MeUndies.com slash RFR.
3: Boy, do we have the antidote for you this week. What a show we have coming up. This is perfect timing because there's pockets of fandom that have never been more cynical. We've even got uh, the media chirping in. A lot of it very inside and insular, but what's wrong with Star Wars? Toxic Star Wars. The problem with Star Wars fans. What's wrong with Star Wars fans? How do we fix Star Wars? These are the kinds of headlines that we're seeing. And it's, uh, it's getting old. We've got, a, uh, a, like I say, a great antidote coming up this week. You're going to love it. Uh, we'll save it uh, for just a couple of minutes. Save the surprise. Uh, But uh, first, uh, joining me, as always, my good friend and yours from Chicago, Jimmy Matt. Hey, Jason. Hey, Star Wars fans. How's everyone doing this week? I think everyone's
1: doing really good and looking forward to a new episode of Rebel Force Radio dropping in during the summertime. Star Wars is always about the summertime, in my opinion. Solo, still out in the theaters. I'm excited because it's shown up now in the $5 theater here in my neighborhood, just two blocks away. So any given moment... In the day, I can just get up and cruise, walk a block and a half, and boom, I'm in the theater eating popcorn, watching the latest Star Wars film. And that, to me, is what summertime is all about. So take advantage and see Solo in the theaters. If you haven't yet, and I feel really weird on a Star Wars podcast saying, if you haven't seen it yet, like three weeks after its release... But uh, that is the case, you know. Some people still haven't gotten around to it. Real hardcore Star Wars fans that I've grown up with are just now going out to see Solo, and because uh, it's five bucks. Is it, that, well, no, is I don't that think why? that's it. It is still playing in uh, most major theaters as well, like your your big chains like AMC, etc. Um, it's mostly unavailable on IMAX at this point but there still may be a few screens dotting around in your local area where IMAX could be still available but for the most part it's been brushed aside for the uh the Incredibles sequel, of course, and then we have Jurassic World coming out this weekend. Yeah, it's so, a crowded field. It's a crowded field. So Solo's moving uh, further and further down on the old totem pole, but I'm excited that I have the opportunity to see it in the classic old neighborhood theater just <laughs> around the corner from my house. So uh, you just
3: like that? You like the idea that you could walk there at any time? Exactly. Exactly. And see Star Wars. I mean, it's a uh... You do live in Mayberry, you know. I've said that before. But you, <laughs>
1: We've been told that, yeah. Y- it do. is Mayberry. For as, as urban as an area it is, it still has a small town charm to it. It's an urban Mayberry. It's a, a very urban Mayberry, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh,
3: Does that make you Otis, by the way?
1: Oh, you know it, pal. <laughs> you should see me walking the dog sometimes late at <laughs> I night.
3: I was to say. Mm. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we are delighted you could be with us here and um, on uh, Rebel Force Radio for this week's show, June 22nd, 2018. So, yeah, certainly it's officially summer. And we just, by the way, happy Father's Day, belated Father's Day to uh, all you dads from last week. Uh, I had a I had a great Father's Day. Did uh, you? We went to the, yeah, 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 we, we, uh, we got to, we just went up to uh, the zoo. Nice. Uh, where my wife works. You know, there's one cool thing about... Uh, You know, my wife works at a zoo. I work at a performing arts center. And the the, kind of the cool thing about it is a lot of times you wouldn't, you know, want to spend your day off at the place where you work. But we both, you know, we don't mind. So, you know, the the day off at, at, at where my wife works is a day off at the zoo. You know, who doesn't love the zoo? So we, we took the kids. We met up with some friends, and we, we went to the zoo, had a good day there. They surprised me in the morning. You know what they got me? This See, this is the test when you know you're getting old. What's this? And as much as I wanted to be um, kind of depressed about it, I still really loved it. They got me a new chair.
2: Oh, <laughs> You
1: yes. know when you get a chair? What a great Father's Day gift. It, it, it
3: is, but I can't, I can't lie. I mean, there's a part of me that's like, wow, this this means the end is is near i think uh like is that the chair i'm gonna die in you know I, th- those are the things i always think about um but you know you know it's, it's a real nice chair to go on the back porch and it reclines and uh it it has this this great little tray that was an add-on that fits an ipad an iphone or a smartphone and a uh a cup of coffee Ooh. Uh, and a martini. Your world so is complete. It, that is your I, whole world. I literally in could the chair. stay there all day. I mean, that's morning, tonight, right? <laughs> a, you've got a you got so, a lot of work ahead of you sitting in that chair. Uh, and of course, you know the the kids. They drew all kinds of great pictures yeah. and, and, and all kinds of oh, homemade stuff. And I I remember doing that for my You know, for my mom and my grandma and stuff. And. And they would just go crazy over it, and, and and part of me thought, yeah, this isn't as good as if I went out to the store and bought you something. But then when you become a parent, you realize that is the cool stuff—the stuff that they make and they put. Like, like my daughter made a made me into a paper doll. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I got to post That's a great. picture of it <laughs> because anytime you you cannot make yeah. a caricature of me because right. I look like a caricature. A paper you know what doll. I'm saying? So a, like, this
1: is fantastic. A paper doll of Jason Swank. We yeah. have to scan this and yeah. put it up on the Rebel Force Radio website so <laughs> so
3: listeners can download it and have their own flat it's Jason. A paper, it, yeah, but it's a paper doll, not a voodoo doll. So those of you <laughs> uh, haters out there, don't get any ideas. Put it on the
1: dartboard. Right? Yeah, right. Well, my kid surprised me with a Star Wars gift, and that rarely happens because... Uh, my Star Wars collection is uh, immense and massive, and um, and uh, my my book collection is also my library is is very yeah. vibrant and and filled and complete. But they found one I didn't have from uh, nineteen ninety seven, the Shadows of the Empire official strategy guide. Oh, that's a great! Yeah. That,
3: that, would they get that at a used place or found it at the. Uh, Secondhand books. It's um, got Shizor on the cover. Right? I can yes, still see it. Yes. It's a, and it's a paperback, kind of oversized
1: book, compatible with the N64, which oh we have man. one humming here in the uh, Rebel Force Radio basement. So, oh. uh, so yeah, I'm gonna have to sit down and revisit well, that game. Cool. That, that that was a, a great time when that uh, whole series launched, The Shadows of the Empire. With the it was remember it was it was all the marketing for a movie. Without the movie, yeah. So you had yeah. the video game, you had the comic book, you had the novel, the action figures, even a soundtrack, but no That's film. Right. Yep, genius, yep. genius.
3: It really was. I remember when all that 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 hype and that hoopla was out, and uh, you know, at the time, I thought, and, and maybe even Lucasfilm thought that that was sort of the, the future of Star Wars. You know, George might have thought, well, you can you can do these kind of big multimedia. Uh, rollouts and really diversify. Not to get too business about it, but obviously it was a business decision. You know, diversify all the revenue streams. You got video game, you got music, uh, you got a, a, a tie-in book, you got all these different. You got a magazine and all this stuff. And um, but you don't, but you don't have the expense and the overhead of a movie. Uh, it was really. Like you say, it was it was pretty genius. Uh, I remember not boy because of that movie. When did that book come out? That came out in ninety six. All right, ninety six. So I had just graduated from high school, and I could not afford the hardback book. <laughs> Honestly, I know I, I don't I, mean I, to laugh. We've all yeah been no there, uh, yeah you know? right, I could not afford it, and Broke I students. remember waiting. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember waiting for the paperback to come out, which seemed like an eternity. So I could buy it for like six bucks back then. Paperbacks were like four ninety five, five ninety five, and I devoured that. In fact, we did a a uh, thanks to you, Jim. We did a uh, kind of a, a random ask me anything on our unofficial Rebel Force Radio Facebook group last night, and someone asked me, you know, outside of the novelizations, which you know, folks know I'm a fan of. Um, what what's your favorite, and Plagueis. So they eliminated everything I've ever talked about on the show, essentially. <laughs> they said, outside of the novelizations and Darth Plagueis, uh, what's your favorite uh, Star Wars novel? Yeah. And I said, I gotta say Shadows of the Empire, yeah. because, um, and is it technically the greatest book? No, but um, reading that uh, that story between Empire and Jedi and it just it was you know hearing about uh, Leia you know pining for Han and wondering what's going on with Han and Han's you know a slab on the wall and then she's kind of she's got this uh, kind of like Han light character that comes into her life and then she's got the kind of the, the, the creepy thing going on with Shizor and uh, yeah, and Luke's trying to find himself, and he's teaming up with Lando. It was just—it was—it's it's so much fun, so much fun.
1: And I believe that uh, they were tossing around uh, during the development of Episode Seven, which was mm-hmm. eventually named The Force Awakens. They were tossing around as an early sort of prototype title for Episode Seven. They—they were kicking around Shadow of the Empire. Hmm. Shadow of the Empire. But I think, I think at the right? end of the day, it would have just been too confusing for them to release a film called Shadow of the Empire when you have this multimedia event from the 90s, still fresh in most fans' minds who were around at that time, even if they weren't. Uh, well, I think that would just cause a little bit too much confusion.
3: One might argue that uh, you know, the First Order is just a shadow of the Empire.
1: Right. Well, I guess right. that's why they came up with the title. And then somebody told JJ, "You have to think of something else, pal." I'm just right. glad they put force in the title because that's something I always wanted was a Star Wars film with force in the title. Yeah. I don't necessarily like how it goes from Episode 6, Return of the Jedi, Episode 7, The Force Awakens, Episode 8, The Last Jedi. Well, didn't you just yeah. say like two episodes ago the Jedi were returning what So, but, yeah, uh, yeah. Though, though, yeah that, that's a, that's a, more... a, a bigger hole to dig some other time. <laughs> but, it is. <laughs> that's it is. real deepy yeah, yeah. stuff. But you know what I'm saying? I, I, just I do. The, the, I, when they announced Revenge do. of the Sith is the name of Episode 3, it almost seemed like everyone said, yes, of course. Right. What a right. perfect title. Yeah. And I thought The Force Awakens was pretty good, too. Um, I really did.
3: You know, I'll be honest with you. Every title with the exception of Revenge of the Sith had to grow on me. Yeah. In fact, I can remember sitting right here in the very chair I'm sitting in when they rolled out the title for the force awakens and, and Jim, we were saying, I, cause there was a lot of criticism about it at the time. And we said, you know what? In a couple of years, it's just going to roll off your tongue, you know, like, like empire strikes back. We'll call it TFA. Mm-hmm. And that's what everybody does. You know I mean? Eventually it becomes part of the lexicon and, um, it does. And, and even Last Jedi, as as divisive as it has become, um, you know, it's TFA, TLJ.
1: Yes, yes. That's why but it's you, important you, you,
3: to, to always be open-minded about this stuff
1: and, and let it sink in, you know, before you start making all these rash assumptions
3: about the direction that the mythology is heading or yeah. all the pet. Well, we problems. are going to talk about that. You know, I mentioned at the top of the show that um, we're, we've got we've got the antidote for those of you and 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 I include cl- myself that are. Kind of a little weary of uh, some of the, the the drama that's going on within fandom. But what kind of a show would we be that covers what's happening on screen and off screen if we didn't we didn't talk about it? It is important to talk about, but it's also important to talk about other things. So we will be talking about the future of Star Wars uh, uh, and the latest fan community meltdowns that are happening on. We've got some headlines, some uh, news about uh, the Boba Fett film and, uh, well, actually, the next... Several years of Star Wars films, some of that information is starting to leak out. But first, we've got to bring back a guest. We get to bring back a guest that has been uh, requested ever since he made his debut appearance here on Rebel Force Radio to break down The Last Jedi. Jim, this is a very close personal friend of yours, and he's become sort of mythological himself. Here at Rebel Force Radio and his reputation, because he just kind of dropped in, laid a bunch of insane, crazy knowledge on us, and then just vanished. <laughs> like a Jedi yes. ghost. Yes. But uh, he's, he's not a ghost.
1: He's here in person. He's the Jedi yogi, John Marcoux. John, yes,
4: welcome back to Rebel Force Radio. Thank you, gentlemen. yes, it's One of my favorite places to be. In the universe.
1: Absolutely. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with John Marcoux, he last joined us in January and gave us the mythological blueprint of Luke Skywalker as seen in The Last Jedi. Now, uh, people are wondering, well, what what qualifies you, sir, as someone who can uh, provide this sort of breakdown? But I, I'll tell you what, I've listened to John talk for a long time. He's a devoted student of Joseph Campbell and other uh, philosophers and authors. He's an author himself, having written Poised to Pummel, the Unauthorized Illustrated Biography of Bruce Lee. And coming soon, John, you have a Bob Marley book on the way. You are a yogi. Uh, if you want to stretch out and you're in the Chicago area and you are interested in trying some hot yoga, check out his Chicago Studios 105F. More information at 105F.com. John, you're an attorney, a tour. Someone who can really tell a good
3: tale. Spin <laughs> well, I had to look that up. I saw that on the show notes. I'm like, "Rack on tour." I gotta look that up. Yeah, see, you can tell anecdotes in a uh, funny and engaging way. Yeah. <laughs> that's you, man. <laughs> and uh, I like to think of uh, Jason
1: and myself as rack and tours ourselves. Uh, but uh, you're here, and uh, for starters, welcome. Again? Yes. yes.
4: That's that's a great welcome. I yep. feel welcome. Thank you.
1: Yes. And uh, you've just seen Solo a couple times, right?
4: Two times. It gets better each time.
1: Yeah. And uh, I, I've only seen it twice myself. So we have to go over to the theater here in the hood and uh, go check it out. I'm ready. They have good popcorn there. I'm ready. So, uh, well, we're ready for what you have to lay on us. And you have taken extensive notes after seeing solo a star wars story and so what's our goal here uh with this breakdown
4: well you know the first time you invited me here uh we had just seen the last jedi and as we poured out of the movie theater all the mythology gushed out of me because especially towards the end there um I'm just flushing what was going on there with the Buddhist, Bodhisattva, meditation, face-off with the God of Death, everything. And you said, hey, come on the show and let's talk. And that's how that happened. This solo movie, it didn't hit me like a bucket of cold water, what the mythologies were, when I first saw it. I just loved it and enjoyed it. And I had some ideas that i chased down i had some suspicions and then when i went back and saw it the second time it all clicked in and so tonight i'd like to take you through what i think are three of the world's great mythologies and how they relate and how they seem to reverberate throughout from the beginning from the opening frame to the end in uh solo perfect if you could because i i know that this is
3: uh sort of your forte is um about keeping your mind in a healthy place and and really looking towards the positive. Uh, Jimmy Mack, you know, he he reminds us all the time about the a great and often overlooked quote by Qui Gon Jinn in in Episode One: uh, "Your focus determines your reality." So, with all of the the the, the drama within fandom, with all of the drama that uh, media sort of kicked up in the 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 dust storm about. Uh, solo. I mean, let's keep in mind a point to bring out is that for over a year we have had people in the media tell us what a disaster this solo movie was going to be. Right? It's just the um, the director, you know, the director shakeups, um, Star Wars potentially Star Wars fatigue, uh, every reason why this movie was was going to fail, and then these same reporters. Uh, turn around, and then start lecturing fans, uh, how dare you? Why, have you, why have you not gone to see this movie? <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a very uh, a cynical time. So could you maybe just take a moment to sort of center us so that we can be receptive uh, to this conversation?
4: Right. Well, the focus determines your reality is uh, a line you hear in the yoga world a lot. So that hits me right on the gong you know (laughs) on the gong when um by by sheer coincidence and great great good luck i was scheduled for a five-day meditation that immediately preceded and overlapped with the opening of solo so i was in a great mind space and i have a practice of intentionally ignoring all the stuff out there that's being said about an upcoming movie. The last few uh, Star Wars movies, I've, been, I've walked into the theater like uh, a blank slate. Uh, but this time around, I couldn't help it. Wherever I went on the internet or to check my email, there was the negativity that you just described. Mm-hmm. It was everywhere. It was uh, surround sound. And I, I tried to push it at bay, but it really was everywhere. So when I went to see Solo, the late show, I got to the parking lot early popped in a meditation cd blanked out my brain again and walked into the theater real clear it was just so pleasant (laughs) uh but after the movie which i loved i tuned back in to the uh what what i think was almost shockwaves of negativity it felt like something had been detonated Uh, i i looked at what everything was being said and i thought this is all just nonsense this this is self-fulfilling prophecy of pessimism if you say something's going to suck for a year guess what
2: yeah
1: you're laying the foundation (laughs) i mean you know we we saw something similar happen with the last jedi because mark hamill was very open in media appearances and interviews by saying this is going to shake fandom to the core this depiction of luke skywalker it's It's way outside the box from what we saw. So, I mean, he was having people, essentially, fandom brace themselves for what was a drastic change in his character. And then afterwards, he would speak more openly about it and say, that was not my Luke Skywalker and and things of that nature. Further driving the point home to people that The Last Jedi was something that might deserve more scrutiny Because if the actor who had played Luke Skywalker for all these years was not on board with it, then why should fans? And that that upset me a great deal, knowing that Mark was not happy with his character in The Last Jedi. Uh, Because I still feel very affected by his performance in that film and the Buddhist journey he was on, essentially.
4: I can imagine... uh if I were an actor who had to play the role he had to play, since 97% of it was negativity, and then it just, blah, at the very end. Right. I, I mean, great redemption, great ending, it's a great way to go off the stage, but if I had to act that for months and be that negative guy, of course I'd walk away with a ugh. I don't know if I'd go out and talk about it. It feels like poor sportsmanship, but uh, I, I can imagine as a human who's an actor for a living, playing a bummer role and feeling like it was a bummer.
1: Right on.
3: Well, and of course, you know, you've got to figure this is uh, this is somebody who naturally, I mean, us as fans thought it too. And, and regardless of whether Mark will admit it, I, I, I'm sure he spent a good portion of the last, uh, you know, uh, 30-some years, nearly 40 years, Thinking, you know, what if we did it? What if we got the band back together? What if we did another one of these? And what would my character be like? And, and, and how amazing would that be? Mm. Uh, I can imagine that after all that buildup, you know, I as a fan feel it. Now, I can really look at that movie with, with two very different. And I, again, don't want to make this about Last Jedi, but I can look at it with two very different sets of eyes. Um, and on the one hand, I can appreciate it very much for what it is, but there's always going to be that part of me as the fan that goes, but yeah, but what if, and, 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 and why couldn't we see Luke, you know, really be the hero? Um, and anybody who wants to hear John's incredible breakdown of The Last Jedi, go back to that episode. It was, it was January, 2018. Uh, Jim, I don't know if you happen to have the date of that particular episode. But you can uh, probably just search on com. look for John's name, John Marcu, um, and uh, you can you can find that episode. But I'm sure that there are people out there, John, that are like, well, wait, 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 wait. I can understand these guys having somebody like John on for um you know a a star wars film that really deals deep and heavy into the force but come on this is han solo he's like the opposite of the force you know he's he's uh he, he's mr cynic you know he's mr real world cynicism um he is that bucket of cold water you were referring to that kind of wakes us up from all the, the the dreamy force stuff in in the movies but you're you're breaking this character down in a way that i i've never heard before
4: well just and, because he's yeah. not into the force doesn't mean he doesn't have his own mythology his hero journey is just different than uh luke Skywalker's.
1: right right you don't have to be mystical to go on to
3: a hero's journey here here all right so tell us okay. about uh, you know han solo's journey from you know when we first meet him uh, in the film because i'm assuming you're kind of taking this chronologically
4: I was going to do this chronologically, but then it just occurred to me that there are three overarching mythological themes that run through the whole movie simultaneously. So I thought I would take it down one mythology at a time, and in that mythological discussion, take it through the movie. Okay, lay it on us.
1: So what's the first mythological connection you made?
4: Okay, so the first one... It was the opening image of the movie. It was also the closing image of the movie. I'll tell you about that in a few. But Han Solo is a Promethean figure. He is like the ancient character, a god, an immortal from uh, Greek literature, Prometheus. Like Han, he's a smuggler who stole fire to help humanity. He's Mm. first mentioned 700 BC by Hesiod. The name Prometheus translates to forethought. He can see into the future. Uh, He also knows the terrors of foresight. So what he did for humanity is he removed the ability to see how you were going to die and allowed hope to sneak in and give you the idea that there's, there's still possibility this is a life worth living. So how is Han like Prometheus? The major story of Prometheus has several beats. Let me take you through them. The first thing that happens is... He tries to trick Zeus at the sacrificial altar. He sets up two piles at the sacrifice. One's a very good-looking pile. It's covered with glistening fat, which back then was considered, if you had any, you were wealthy and it was good for you. But the fat just covered all these inedible bones. The other pile looked repulsive. I think he put the cow's stomach or something on top. But it hid all of the choice meats, all the choice cuts. And he said to Zeus... Here's the sacrifice. Pick a pile. Now, Zeus knew what was going on. He didn't exactly get tricked. And he picked the glistening fat with the bones underneath. And he used it as an excuse to punish Prometheus. First of all, let me just say what what that trick was in relation to Han. Han does trick Dryden and Beckett with a quote-unquote fake load of coaxium at the very end of the movie. Yes. So they're both tricksters. Prometheus and Han are tricksters. That's the first point I want to make. The second point is when Zeus does a penalty, he deprives humanity of fire. He basically says, okay, you can have your meat, but you got to eat it raw because I'm not going to let you have fire to cook your meat. So hmm. pr- so Prometheus storms the heavens, steals fire, smuggles it back to humans. The, the old myths, they have three possible sources. You know, The poets back then, they didn't really work out the details together too much one of them has him going into Zeus's palace while he's having a party going over to the fireplace and stealing it from Zeus's fire Uh, another tale tells of uh, him sneaking into the workshop of Hephaestus the god of fire and and a smith another one said he, he went up into the sky and grabbed a burning chunk from Helios's flaming chariot he basically stole the fire from the sun and the great playwright, Aeschylus, said that he stole the flowery splendor of fire. And in a similar way, Han has stolen the unrefined coaxium from the mines, and he's that, those are analogous to Hephaestus' underground smith shop. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Now, yeah, right. Now, the way he does it, he storms in and he zips out. Prometheus is considered one of the great heroes because... Unlike, say, for instance, Odysseus, who has to travel for 10 years, bouncing around through all kinds of monsters to finally get his mission done. The superior hero sees what he wants, zips in, grabs it, zips out. He's the man. And uh, Han does the same thing. With L3's navigational assistance, <laughs> he, uh, he covers the run in under 12 parsecs when you round it down.
1: <laughs> this is true.
4: So there's
1: your connection to ancient Greek mythology. Well,
4: it goes a little further. Because not only is that a Promethean feat, he, 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 he should brag a little bit about the achievement, doing it in 12 parsecs. The smuggling of the coaxium to uh, the rebel force is equivalent to Prometheus' stealing of the fire to give the humanity. They're both considered champions of a, of a good... Uh, service to humankind. They use their intelligence and craftiness to help society literally survive. And and at the very end of the movie, Enfys Nest tells Han what these 60 million units of coaxium means. It gives life to a rebellion. That's a quote.
3: Yes. Yes.
4: And, and one of the, the best things I liked about the way he smuggled it, the way Han played out that he was a trickster He used a a trick, a ruse, like the emperor wears no clothes. He opened the box and showed the coaxium and they didn't believe it because he he had already faked out Beckett a few minutes earlier. Hmm. He got them to believe it wasn't it, even though it was the real stuff. That was so cool. (laughs) Let me
1: ask you this. So the coaxium, because it was unrefined, had a very strict expiration date. Okay? If you want to compare Han with the coaxium to prometheus with the fire is there a similar situation where the flame was going to go out and he had to get it from point a to point b quickly or is that just
4: yeah if, if zeus caught a wind of him he was going to throw a thunderbolt and the uh, mission would have been over lickety split
1: okay so he was up against the clock the
4: clock being zeus's knowledge of what he was up to virtual omniscience not total omniscience of what's going on in the universe okay and
1: okay this, and
4: by the way this this fire theft mm-hmm. this is a global and in most cultures there's somebody stealing a fire there's in hawaii maui stole fire from the goddess mahui ike yes who lived in the underworld and hid secret of combustion in her fingernails and he went down there and got it like he was stealing the secret recipe from from the colonel in the Bushmen of Africa, they report praying mantis stole it from the ostrich. And the Maidu Indians of California say the mouse stole it from thunder and brought it to mankind, hidden in a flute, which is the same kind of way that Prometheus hid fire in uh, some dried fennel, a stalk of fennel.
1: Wow. Wow. And then, uh, of course, you know, if you... Uh Look uh, at at more modern storytelling. Uh, You know, Robin Hood, he stole from the rich and gave to the poor. So there's always that indelible quality heroes have that make them charitable, that make them the hero of the underdog, is because they do things that eventually will benefit that underdog.
4: Not necessarily, but in this case, for sure. Okay. And... Incredibly, this is one of the few instances where we have Joseph Campbell himself talking about Star Wars, talking about Han Solo. He said, and I quote, Solo was a very practical guy, at least as he thought of himself, a materialist. But he was a compassionate human being at the same time and didn't know it. The adventure evoked a quality of his character he didn't know he possessed. And so living the life evokes, are you a good guy or are you a bad guy? It's in the pudding. It's in, it's in what you do, mm. not what you say. Mm. So, Yeah,
3: I, I thought that that was, and I've mentioned this on the show probably every time we've talked about Solo, that, that to me one of the more compelling moments of the film is when Kira tells Han something that, you know, this is a guy that sort of uh, at least parades around like he knows himself uh, better than anybody does. And yet she looks at him and tells him, I know who you are. You're the good guy. And he, he doesn't it's you get the sense that he doesn't want to be the good guy. He wants to be the scoundrel. He wants to be the hotshot pilot. He wants to be the guy who's, um, you know, pulling one over on, uh, you know, on somebody else. But but she calls him out for for what he is. And that's, of course, the Han that, you know, later develops uh, into the uh, original trilogy.
4: Now, she's, she's a fascinating character in the movie. And mythologically, she is not who you think she is. A lot of people, if you asked, I bet you would say she's the love interest in the movie. But she is not. And the end of the Promethean story, and the Prometheus story, rather, indicates maybe who she is. So, okay. Just to recap. Trickster, Prometheus, Prometheus pulls this trick on the sacrificial altar, Zeus retaliates, takes fire away, Prometheus sneaks in, steals the fire back, gives it to humanity, and now Zeus retaliates, both Uh. against Prometheus and humanity. Uh. So to Prometheus, he sentences him to eternal torment, which in this case, he chains him to a rock, and an eagle eats his liver every day. But because he's immortal, his liver regenerates every night. This goes on for 30,000 years, according to some of the poets, until Hercules comes along and breaks the chains.
1: There's been some weekends where I think my liver has also regenerated (laughs) itself overnight.
4: (laughs) But thank God. (laughs) But look at the mythological blueprint here. He sentences him to eternal torment. The liver eating is just the details. Han, too, a little bit later is sentenced to eternal torment, carbon froze. Until, like Heracles, Leia comes along and frees him. Yes. But, not only does Zeus retaliate him, Zeus retaliates against humanity by creating Pandora. Hephaestus sculpts a lovely girl out of earth and water, makes the clay. Athena dresses her and puts the jewelry on her. Aphrodite... Gives her grace and charm and ravenous lust. Hermes teaches her how to lie, flattery, seduce, be treacherous, and shamelessness. So she's a player, Pandora. Four winds breathe life into her, and then they give her a box. It's, that's what her name means. Pandora, all gifts. In the box are all gifts, which is not actually what's in there. It's the box of all the troubles of mankind. Pain, evil, diseases, misery, and woe. Kira is a Pandora figure. I mean she's just straight up gangster by the end, right? She sits yeah. she's the yeah. she's the right hand sith, but throughout the movie, if you watch the movie and check her, each time along the way, either she's doing something, increasingly showing you that she fits all these Pandora uh uh, indicators, and sometimes they don't even show you what she does. Like behind a closed door, you can see through a small window. She just unloads on somebody, and the door opens. And L three says, "What was that? I've never seen that before. What do you call that? I mean, she's yeah. hardcore, man. Yeah, mm. yeah. And and um, so if she's not, so she's not the love interest.
3: No, no. There, so so Han doesn't have a love interest. In
4: the uh, show. No, no, no. Actually. I'm, I, my image right now, my feeling about the solo movie, the best part about it is the love story, but it's not Kira. And I'm going to tell you about that in one of the other myths.
3: Oh, God, it's not L3. is it? it? Is. I know. <laughs> he's going to say
4: it's chewy. But, but let me tell you about this sweet, beautiful tension that I detected between Han and Kira because obviously now she's different. Mm-hmm. And, and he's not really picking up on that or he doesn't want to believe it or something's going on. We'll talk about that in a bit but when all of the woes that have escaped Pandora's box when the lid was opened and it swarmed over the earth and started causing suffering to everybody one, one creature stayed in the box and got caught underneath the heavy lid and that's hope optimism and hope Han is teeming with the optimism we're going to talk about that in a minute that's the next myth but uh, she has so little hope that she actually savors; she's nostalgic for Han and that way of thinking and that way of living, and um, that's really the the nature of their relationship is is that. But it's hanging by a thread because she's got to do what she's got to do.
3: So, wh- where do you stand? I, well, I guess it's somewhat obvious, but one of the questions when you when you leave the movie is: was she was she trying to protect Han? Was she just in it for herself or did she find a happy medium and was she just lucky that she found a solution that did both? That yep. A yep. protected
4: I, I think she did both. I mean, I think she would have protected Han to a point. And she actually I mean, look how look how she took out Dryden Voss at the end, right? She, she 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 actually took Han down with ease. She looked like a ninja. And then um she of, of course she looked. but I don't know if that would hold up in future. I mean she did what she could but i mean in, in other circumstances it might not work out so well yeah
3: she's gonna she's gonna choose number one when the yep. you know what hits the fan as, so. as
4: as others in the movie said she's a survivor yeah okay yeah. So, so the last thing i just want to say about the promethean fire and solo yeah the way you can detect it okay hollywood has embraced joseph campbell the adventure uh the hero's journey the whole thing and in many ways they've codified it it's 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 part of their vocabulary and there are certain beats that you can look for in movies to see certain things and one of the most important things modern movie makers do is they very consciously select what the very opening images the very opening frame and the very last frame because those are the beginning ending points and the hero's arc stretches between those two you see where the hero was at the first image and then the last image indicates where the hero has gone to where's the transformation what has happened in the meantime where would the movie take you and so in the solo movie the opening image is a spark in the dark you hear it and then a few seconds later you start putting it together that somebody's trying to hotwire a car and make an escape but the opening image is a spark in the dark looking for fire and then the final image is Han, Chewie, and the Falcon jumping to light speed, then credits. So you see Han looking for a spark, looking for some fire. And at the end, he's got his fire. Wow. So what, what great bookends, actually, for, and, you know, to complete his story. You uh, know. P- for, for, for people of, of the ilk that are working on screenwriting and producing Star Wars movies, this is unmistakably, unmistakably Promethean imagery. They knew what they were doing, and this of uh, the reason I picked this mythology first, Prometheus is because the 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 makers chose to open and close with it, and it fits everything else
3: the thing like, I want to pick up on is this idea and, and we were talking a little bit about it off air is uh, calling Han Solo the optimist because we have you know referred to him many times here on this show over the years. As you know, the real world cynic, he provided that dose of reality and this fantastical uh, galaxy. He was sort of the everyman. He was there to sort of translate for us what was going on in the Star Wars universe. And that seemed to sort of uh, create this cynic image of Han Solo, the uh, uh, the guy that's been from one end of the galaxy to the other and never seen anything, you know, like the force and and all of that. But but you're coming away saying that this guy is an
4: incurable optimist. In this movie, in Solo, he is an optimist who's apprenticing under Beckett, who's the cynic who he will later become. So if you listen to what Beckett's saying, Solo in later movies will echo that. Because that's just, if you're going to be a smuggler, look, there's some hard rules you got to live by, right? So mm-hmm. there's a mix. But as a kid, as a coming-of-age guy trying to make it in the business of smuggling... I counted a long parade of Han Solo optimisms though almost with one glaring exception Han Solo everything he says in the movie is optimistic and in a few minutes if you want I can pull it as a stunt I I can reel off all these optimistic things but in the in the in the greater space of world mythology he's a, a great his character in this movie is a reflection of one of the great characters of the Western canon, uh, a character written by Voltaire in what is considered Voltaire, Voltaire's magnum opus. And it's Candide. And the title of the book is mm. Candide, comma, or The Optimist. And it's a short, savagely satirical, and widely banned book blasting away at everybody, including the church and government. And it takes dead aim at the what was a popular philosophy at the time it was written metaphysical optimism, which, which, which Voltaire thought was just incredibly insanely silly in the face of all the widespread suffering going on in Europe at the time. So he just took dead aim and just once he started swinging, everybody was in his way. And, and, and so that means all the powers that be didn't want his book published or read by anybody. Um, but there's a lot of Han and Candide story correlations. And then, um, well, let's start with that. Let's start with that. Let's do it. Yeah. So you want to walk
1: us through yeah, This the is... optimistic Han Solo?
4: Yes. I, I'm, first, I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about how he relates to Candide, which is not as extensive as, as how Han related to Prometheus in the, in the last part we talked about. So in the book, Candide is described as a simple young man. He's uh, being taught by, uh, because he's a fancy young lad, he has his own professor, Pre- Professor Pangloss, which is one of the great names in literature. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pangloss. It means, Gloss. means everything's well, great. And anybody, he's he's teaching this optimism, like, the world's the best it could possibly be, enjoy it, don't worry about anything, whatever happens, doesn't matter, it's the best that could possibly be.
1: John, real quick, when, when did Voltaire, when when was he active? 1700s. 1700s, okay.
4: So before before, you know for uh, the Americans listening uh, before this, before the declaration of independence. And, uh, so Candide is a simple young man and he has affections for a young lady Cunegonde. And if you Google Cunegonde, C-U-N-E-G-O-N-D-E, it's a dirty word in French. Anyway, um, they're, they're, at the beginning. anatomy yes anatomy. yes, anatomy. yes. Oh, and okay. at, the, be- at right. the very beginning of the story you can so he's st- like ian fleming naming these women
3: after uh, body yes. parts yes yes yes, okay, yes yes
4: you right, nailed right. it you nailed it okay. jason and 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 just like in the han uh just like han suffered in solo there you could see at the very beginning there's something about to happen and then boom they're abruptly separated where Candide, the guy, is impressed into the military, just as Han is recruited into the military because he's making the escape. And gand is yanked into a series of really nasty, nasty adventures. Candide hears Dang. that she's dead, and only years and years later, when they run into each other again, he says to her, I heard you were raped and disemboweled. And she said, yeah, people survive these things. (laughs) You know, Like it wasn't that big of a deal because she had also been kidnapped and enslaved by a series of pirate ships. Wow. She was in a plague at in a civil war where she was somewhere that was under siege and everybody was suffering from famine. So she had one of her buttocks cut off to feed the uh, military guys. Mm. So again, years later they reunite and obviously, Obviously. She has no teeth. She's not the same. And yet Candide treats her like they just were separated a couple of days ago. Right. And in the movie. Han- so he's still hot. He's still hot for her, even though she's missing a
3: butt cheek and has no teeth.
4: Yes. Wow. And, and, and wow. has been. That has is, been re- that's true love. Has, man, been, right. has been passed has been around. Has used by all these pirates. Sent to the Caribbean and back 40 times. Right. Wow. wow. On pirate wow. ships. Wow. Mm. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and Han is on uh, the yacht. And he's told not to talk to anybody. None of these people are your friends. Again, some of the cynicism that Beckett was handing off, and he runs back into Kira. And now she had her teeth, and boy, did she look good. (laughs) Right, and
3: and and from what I could tell, she had both butt cheeks too.
4: I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I did not verify that visually, but maybe on my third watch, I'm gonna check that out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But the scars run deep. Yes, it's it's not any any sort of physical scar or physical
4: transformation she's gone through and the the screenwriters and producers and the makers of this movie wasted no opportunity to let you know she's not the girl he knew it, and, and to the point where she actually told him, I'm not the girl you knew. Yeah, yeah right, right, right. So, so, if, and this guy. And that wasn't subtle enough for you. <laughs> right. um, yeah, He keeps on <laughs> pressing on through, just like Candide. And, yeah. and the second half of the book is Candide's optimism. Gradually and and painfully, his his eyes are becoming clear to what the real reality is, and it's it's watching him being broken down like that, and it's
3: well. Before before we move any further, you you promised us that you would sort of break down some of these these lines of dialogue because I know we've got people in the audience that are going, no, no, Han Solo's no optimist. Okay,
4: even in even in Solo, a Star Wars story, he's still the cynical pirate. Let me tick off a bunch of them, uh, and 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 you see you see. Let's see what your impression is. Okay. So the opening scene, he has a bad deal, goes bad, and he shows back up to the bosses, Lady Proximas, and he doesn't have any of the goods in his hand. And watch the way he's optimistically talking out of him, talking himself out. He's like, look, we can fix this. Then, mm-hmm. as he's trying to run the speeder to the uh, spaceport to make the escape, he says, we can make it. And Kira says, no, we don't. And at the very end of the uh, alley, his uh, speeder gets squeezed. <laughs> but again, he was optimistic. He thought, hey, we can do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the security, he tries to bribe the officer. And he sh- they show the uh, coaxium. And she says, you could be detained for this. And he says, eh, what good that would do anyone? You know what I mean? Looking a few seconds or minutes into the future, hey, there's a better there's a better way. And then when Kira was afraid of actually putting it into the slot and handing over the coaxium to get let through, he kept saying, do it, do it, do it. This is somebody who's saying, let's go. It's going to be all right. At the recruitment, where the guy was sneering at him about what he wants to do, he was like, yeah, I want to be a pilot. And he laughed at him. He's like, you know what? You know, it's like, it's like saying, you know, I'm four foot tall and I want to be in the NBA. The guy's like, yeah, okay. But he was, he was optimistic. When he was petitioning Beckett, to go a wall for the empire and to join his crew, so he can go out and make his money and get a ship and all that. Beckett smashed him in the face. How many times? He reports him. Yeah. He gets sent into the yeah. into the pit. He, he is. I mean, he does everything he can to say, "Kid, beat it!" And he keeps coming at him. This, we can do this. We can do this. We can do this. Around the campfire, when Beckett agrees to bring him in on the next day's heist. He tells the story about the about the girl back home, and he wants to get some money and buy a ship and go rescue her. And they said, "How do you know she's still there?" He says, "I just know." When the deal goes bad, and uh, Beckett's like, "I got to go back and answer to my guy," you know, Dryden Voss. He he says, "You don't have to come with me." Dryden Voss doesn't know you are. He voluntarily submits, mm-hmm. and he says, "I'll do it." And he says, "Why?" He goes. It's worth the risk. If it's for the money, it's worth the risk. I believe optimism is, I believe there's a better future. Let's do this. And that's what he's saying. When he goes up into the yacht and has the negotiations with Dryden, um, he thinks, Dryden thinks the negotiations are over. He's like, "Oh, boys. He's about to have them all killed. And what happens? Han Solo jumps forward and says, whoa, 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 why don't we find an unrefined source? Hey, work with, he says, work with me here. All we need is a fast ship and a brilliant pilot. You already got the brilliant pilot. Optimism, optimism, optimism. When he goes to Lando's to get the ship, he sees the card game. He thinks he can beat Lando. Optimism. When he <laughs> he when he's um, in Lando's cape closet, which is one of my favorite sets ever. He's untreating Kira. He's saying, "Hey, let's do this. We can do this. Everything will be fine." She's saying, "No, it can't." He keeps saying, "Yes, yes, it can." When uh, oh, by the way, uh, when they. They show up at the uh, planet and go to the mines, and she turns Han over. Uh, she hands him the golden dice. Do you know as she returns that after years? Did you remember that beat? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. In the oh, yeah. background, John Williams' music plays, but they use a child's um, xylophone to play it. It's, it sounds like it's playing in a crib somewhere, and it's evocative of their past. But Ooh. again, that's an optimistic moment. When he's trying to escape the maelstrom, you know, the gravity pit with the huge octopus trying to pull them down? Yeah. He, most people, when the deal goes down, they get pessimistic. They go, oh, shit, where's the escape pod? He's like, let's give it a hot shot when, when, when everything seems lost. By the way, the gravity pit is straight out of Odysseus. That's Charybdis, the powerful whirlpool in the Mediterranean that sucks everything in and vomits it out, destroyed. Uh, the ship had to had to navigate it both going to war and coming back. So he had to, uh, Odysseus had to outdo Charybdis twice. Okay, mm. when when they downloading L three. Um into the computer to try and calculate a faster way back and and get get out of this mess he says i have a really good feeling about this there's no rational indicators that he should be feeling optimistic about what's about (laughs) to happen and yet just like all the greatest heroes when the mission seems impossible when it seems at its darkest the greatest heroes say yes we can let me let me just tick off a few more when lando declares after after solo crashes uh the millennium falcon i never want to see you again Mm -hmm. and he starts walking away han says never and optimists are known to say all things shall pass there is no never you know this is always an isolated incident it might be a day it might be a season but it will eventually get over it that's an optimist when uh kira is telling him you know i know who you are you're the good guy right before that he says i can take care of myself He's looking into the future and whatever rebel forces are, I'm sorry, rebel forces, woo, whatever bad forces, whatever bad forces are out there, it doesn't matter. I can handle them. Let me, last few. When he unclicks his holster to fight against, uh, you know, the uh, marauders, mm-hmm. he, he, they all are pointing their guns at him. Who unclicks their gun at that point? It's, it's impossible odds. And yet, he thinks he can do it. He tells Beckett his plan. We don't hear it. The camera cuts away for a few. But when they come back, Beckett says, man, that's dicey. I don't know. He thinks there's a positive plan even when a guy like Beckett says you can't do that. Elevator up to Dryden's yacht for one of the uh, critical scenes. He tells Kira, we're going to win. And she's like, "Uh, this isn't something you want to lose, dude. But that's what an optimist thinks. (laughs) An optimistic (laughs) athlete walks onto the field saying, I'm going to win this game. Yes, And um, when he's fighting with Dryden up in the yacht right before Dryden takes it, uh he says to han this is a mis- you're making a mistake and he says it wouldn't be my first and he's like yeah it's going to be your last and han says why so negative it's a wise ass comment but it's an optimist's yeah. comment it's not a pessimist's so, comment so so he does sort of wrap his optimism
3: up with uh perhaps we, we perceive as sarcasm or cockiness cynicism, arrogance cockiness hubris right. but
4: the way you look at it is it's optimism hey man when when somebody, because says he somebody believes somebody in too, himself that's that's certainly part of it he has a young lad's belief in himself like that that zesty that gusto that like you never see a football player walking down the street with his friends after a game the way the shoulders are back kind of thing he's got that young man's thing and he even mm-hmm. the last line in the movie, he ends with optimism. He says to Chewie, when Chewie complains about, you know, hey, we're going to go see this guy about it. We got a gig. He says, when have I ever steered you wrong? Look into the future. <laughs> it's all going to be good, man. And yeah. so you can call Han Solo a pessimist. I, I'm not going to, you know, there, there's maybe plenty to talk about there. But in this movie, in Solo, he's an optimist. Every single line he is given, except for one. Which one? And it's a key line. It is leaving the poker table for the first time, heading to the impound yard. After he's lost. After he is lost with Lando and Kira and Beckett. And as he's walking through what looks like a futuristic version of Sanford and Sons' uh, uh, beat up old beaters. (laughs) Han says three statements in a row, bam, bam, bam. He says about Lando, he's a hustler. He has no ship. And if he has a ship, it's probably a rust bucket. And then he turns the corner and he sees the Falcon for the first time. And he suffers what is known as aesthetic arrest. When you see you're, you're a young man and you see the most beautiful girl in the world and you just stop short and your legs freeze. I mean, look, next time you see the movie, watch Han's reaction to seeing the Falcon. And it extends for minutes. He looks like he's grinning ear to ear like he's just been told the love of his life, which it is. The Millennium Falcon is the love story in this
1: movie. Oh, bravo. I thought you were going to say Chewbacca for sure.
4: No. Although, when I saw Chewbacca air dry, I was like, oh man, I can see... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let me tell you why that's the love story again remember I told you screenwriters have codified the uh, hero's journey yes mm-hmm. there are certain points in the movie where the love story lands one third of the way into the movie one half of the way into the movie and two thirds of the way into the movie there's there are love interest beats the one third of the movie in is known as the meet cute this is the part of the movie when um, a girl's online at the bookstore, and she drops her book and leans over, and the guy in front of her leans over, and they pick up the book at the same time, and they look at each other. <laughs> right, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That happened with, with, with uh, Han staring at the Millennium at that exact minute. I mean, I marked down the minute. In the movie that it happens. And that's when the love interest is usually introduced. It's called the B story. Hey, before you move any
1: forward, though, uh, for those keeping score at home, what exactly was the uh,
4: minute? Give us. Oh, uh... uh, I didn't write them in these notes. We're going to have to post those later. Uh, But okay, (laughs) let me just say this. In a 90 minute movie, it happens somewhere between the 30 and 34th minute. This movie, I timed, they list it in the newspaper as two hours and 15 minutes. But when you time it from the glimmering Lucasfilm uh, image Mm -hmm. to the first opening credit, it's exactly two hours and five minutes in. Or 125 minutes. So one third of the way in. Just about the 40, 42 minute mark. I'm, I'm making an estimated guess there. So that's when the love story starts. Got it. Now that's the B story. The A story is... Is is, is is Hans trying to be free. He's oppressed. He wants to make money. He wants to get a ship and he wants to be free. And then he meets the B story, the love interest of Millennium Falcon. And they're about to intersect in a few ways because the Falcon is going to become his means for freedom. So at the midpoint, at the halfway movie, this is now officially my favorite part of the movie. It beats... It beats um, chewy drying off in the air as the ship was flying through the air right that was so visually i all my senses felt that (laughs) but at the midpoint and in in a a 125 minute movie at 62 and a half minutes like on the money i mean they landed this like kerry strug you know what i'm saying yeah you could do it (laughs) he's in the ship they're flying away lando is is taking care of business Han jumps into the second seat, and his hands reach out. They're cupped as if he was reaching out for a love. And they're hovering millimeters above the handles. And L3 comes in and says, hey, you presumptuous, you know what, get out of there. Who do you think you could fly this thing? And get Han your jumps presumptuous out. presumptuous ass out of yes, my seat. Yes, yes. And it was the near miss. It was the lean in for the kiss when Dad turned on the light. You know what I mean? Uh. And said, hey, oh
1: nice right
4: yeah, right okay the next beat is at the two-thirds mark this is consummation so in a 90 minute movie the hollywood screenwriters call this sex at 60 this is the two-thirds mark of the movie and this is when han actually jumps into the seat and takes off because lando is too preoccupied grieving over l3 in the other room now, right, yeah. so so for, so for the three traditional beats that Hollywood follows for the love interest, all three of those beats are Han sees the Millennium Falcon, Han reaches out to grope the Millennium Falcon, and then Han actually gets to hold the Millennium Falcon.
3: Now, did he ask the Millennium Falcon's permission first?
4: L <laughs> three <laughs> just l l three just tweeted hashtag Me too. Yeah.
3: Uh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the the consummation. And okay. Han has had his his, his, his kiss it's his love. from the love of his life, which is not Leia, not Chewie, not Kira, but the Millennium Falcon.
4: I think so. And which
3: I really—see, I, that, that really resonates this with This is my I, thesis, I, I, man.
4: This is my thesis. And you can verify yeah. it with other points. For instance, at the final card game, uh, they're, they're having a conversation. They're talking smack over the cards. And he's talking in the language that you would talk about, about stealing another guy's girlfriend. And Lando's, mm. Lando's a player, so he knows all about this talk. And, mm-hmm. and Han says, believe me, it's mutual. She wants to be with me, too. And then he wins her. Ah. And then he wins her.
3: And he wins her. And then he takes wow. off. He,
4: ta- ta- like he grabs the princess and takes off. The last scene is him and his best friend, Chewie, and the love of his life. Zoom! Wow. That's great. That's amazing.
3: The true love story of Solo, a Star Wars story. Now it's known. So, so John, this relationship, this, the love of Han's life, uh, when we kind of go outside of uh, the, uh, this particular film and we go into the original trilogy, um, it, this stays consistent. Because I feel like Han is the type of guy that would not uh, take the risk of really falling in love, love with you know, another flaky person. Uh, in fact, it's Beckett that tells him just, you know what, assume everybody that you meet is going to betray you at some point and you'll never be disappointed. So for him to focus his his attention, and this is not about, you know, romance. We're speaking metaphorically here, uh, unless you're John Kasdan. And then it you never know. It, it might actually be romance. Mm. But if we're looking at just the, the connection that he has with the ship, what is it? Is it is it that it's a symbol of his freedom? Um what, what is the, what's the sort of the, the foundation of the, of the love between Han and the Falcon?
4: I think it, it's um, got a lot of ingredients. You just named one of the big ones for sure. Uh, it's a means for freedom, which he's been dreaming about since he was a little kid. So, I mean, look at, look at what, what dudes dream about when they're little kids, right? Being baseball stars and having a fancy car and everything. And then dudes, when they're later... All right, I missed it, but I can now afford a red convertible. You know what I mean? Like that's that's the yeah. kind of stuff that really sticks deep. It's impressed deep at a young age. Um, his he said his dad worked at the factory, so as as any who has worked uh, or gone to the work of their father and looked over their shoulder, there's uh, a romantic attachment. Like I, maybe I'll do this just like my dad did, or uh, they, there's probably something embedded deep. I know a lot of guys who grew up and their dads were always in the garage working on their old like '67 Chevy Novas sure. and like juicing them up and everything, and they have that love for those cars still. I think I think there's a and hey, look, Lucas, uh, who originally put this together, just finished American Graffiti. I mean, this guy. I mean, you don't have six degrees of Kevin Bacon on this one. It's about two.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and George is a yeah. notorious gearhead. He loved to race cars in his youth. He still is uh, very much an aficionado of uh, open wheel racing and uh, and um, and uh, uh, Formula One and things of that nature. So, um, his his love for cars definitely shown through in both graffiti and. In Star Wars through Han Solo.
4: But you know what? It, it, the, freedom, uh, the freedom idea, but this, is, this is my means for freedom. This is my escape pod. This is how I can, like a teenager who gets their license and they get a car and all of a sudden their, 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 their zone of freedom, their jurisdiction vastly expands in a minute. Yes. Um, that's definitely part of it. And we're going to discuss that in the third and final great world myth that I think ran through Solo. All right. Well, let's
1: jump into it. This is the third mythological element that comes into play in your uh, blueprint for Han Solo. Right. So uh, I'm really uh, interested. So we've done ancient Greece. Yep.
4: We've done... um,
1: Renaissance France. the, the, The French Renaissance.
4: And now we're coming to what the world considers America's contribution to world mythology, cowboy from the American West. It's,
1: I think All right. that was not a recording, by the way. That was an impromptu uh, performance amazing. <laughs> of uh, uh, Morricone's soundtrack for the spaghetti westerns that Clint Eastwood would star
3: in as the man with no name. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was fantastic. By the way, there's an amazing. Uh, video that's gone around it's 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 viral i don't know the name of the orchestra but it's it's a uh, it's a live performance by an incredible orchestra mm-hmm. doing that very piece mm. and it's it's absolutely fantastic i've seen it show up on my facebook feed multiple times and uh it's 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 really good because they do all of the uh you know all of that that uh vocal work you know is done by real real people the whistling and and all of that it's uh if none of it was synched,
1: all right. Well, we'll, yeah. ch- we'll look for it and we'll put it up on our Facebook page. Yeah,
4: it's great. Professional whistling is a great career if you can pull it off. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of the few old west tropes that didn't make it into Han. I mean, I mean maybe I'll go back a third time and, and look for a whistler. But you know, before we get into the before we get into the full mythology and the abstract and the Joseph Campbellians and all that stuff, let's just savor what was so obvious on the surface of the movie. Because they're so good at creating this beautiful ecosystem, and in this one the 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 American West really comes out you got for starters Hans gunslinger outfit uh, they're when they're uh, putting together plans for a great train robbery I mean come on my uh, my dad he loved John Wayne and he had a coffee cup with the great uh train robbery uh image on it and uh i have that i drink out of that coffee cup almost every day i I get it i see this image and that's what happened when they were trying to steal the coaxium in that first uh that first big scene but when they're sitting around the campfire at night that's like such a old school old western scene you know guys eating the beans i think in um where's the movie where all the guys are sitting around farting Oh, is that Blazing, Blazing, Saddles? Saddles. Blazing Saddles. yes. Yeah, right. Yes. Right. It's it's that. It was either
3: that or Star Trek V The Final Frontier. There's <laughs> uh, a great campfire in that as well. Um but yeah, and, and they're and they're sitting there and they're they're kind of, you know waxing about all the things that they want to do yeah. once the big heist is over. And you know, you've got uh Beckett who's talking about what was the what was that instrument called that he wanted to learn how to play? The-
4: <laughs> right, right. It sounded like an old timey kind of instrument.
3: Yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. He was going to retire and just sit on the front porch and play this instrument.
4: It wasn't harpsichord, but it had the same sort of cadence. Da-da-da-da, something like the
3: valacord. Yeah, ah, I see what you did there. Like the valacord or something, because it was close to uh, Val, who was his his squeeze.
4: Ah, well, when the great train robbery goes wrong. They, they have a couple of burials out in the desert. And if you've ever seen a, a, a movie uh, in, the, in the Old West, when somebody dies, there's no funeral home, right? You, just, <laughs> no, you dig 18 inches right there and it's over. And hopefully, you know, the buzzards get them after you leave. <laughs> <laughs> but that, but that's, that, they, they set that up. Um, when they go to uh, negotiate for Lando to uh, fly them, yeah. uh, they step off to the side. And Beckett's pouring himself a shot on a bar. I don't know if anybody picked that one up. Hmm. You got the card game with Lando with all that macho talk. And I think Ace Up a Sleeve was invented in the Western. And, you know... Those are. I mean, a man will get killed if he has if he's hiding an ace up his sleeve. That's, yeah, that's all
1: part of that. Well, of course, you know, Western uh, the, the mythology of the Western certainly uh, found its way, uh, you know, seeping into the Star Wars mythology since the beginning. I mean, a lot of people would originally refer to George Lucas's first Star Wars film as a space Western, and you really got that vibe. Of course, with uh, the, the Moss Eisley Cantina, standing in for the old West Saloon, and you know, there's uh, there's fights at the bar, and uh, and uh, you know, gunslingers having showdowns, and uh, all of that. And
4: stuff. nobody's it's, calling nine one one.
1: No, no. They, well, this was when you know justice was served by society. There was no system of. Balances and checks and balances in place. This was all just being handled right out in the uh, open.
4: And and, and life out in space is like life on the frontier in the old west. Uh, It's dangerous. Just ask Luke's uncle Owen. And of course, this is something the empire. Yeah, this is something the empire
1: promotes. You know, this is something they cultivate. They want lawlessness to happen. They want uh, mayhem, anarchy in certain areas of society.
4: You know, uh, there's some people in the modern times that are trying to do that too.
1: Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. That we they can see, profit off that.
1: We often see it playing out on social media. So, uh... And you
4: know, one of the last little things I saw that felt so Western-like? What's that? At the very end of the movie, whoever the, the beautiful woman is in the movie, they do this, like an old-timey Hollywood, they do this like, lasting shot where you can't see any pores on the skin of their face, the lighting is perfect, and they're looking off into the future. And at the very end, when Kira's yacht took off and she ditched out, Uh, they did this extended shot of her that just reminded me of Elizabeth Taylor and all those old starlets looking at the end of that movie. Yes,
1: there was certainly an old school Hollywood appeal to the way Amelia Clark was portrayed as Kira in this film.
4: I would love if somebody out there found a a picture of Kira at the end and put it side by side with a picture of Elizabeth Taylor at the end of Cleopatra because I think they stole the exact same shot. Wow, interesting. That's an interesting... Um, perspective okay so so i gave you the surface stuff this is what it felt like this was all these indicators of you know this is the this is the frontier this is the west things are tough in the in the excellent book jimmy that you referenced for me and that i picked up a copy of a few years ago star wars the magic of myth yes yes. it was in association with a smithsonian presentation that's
1: right and that it was a touring museum exhibit Star Wars, the magic of myth. And it took all of these great Star Wars costumes and props and artwork. And it went out on display uh, all over the country. It landed here at the field museum in Chicago. But um, what it did was it, 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 it gave you this very clear lineage, this, all of the stepping stones that tied in a lot of, mythology into Star Wars. And so this was the book that was like the souvenir book on the tour. They actually put out a whole book that you could buy in the gift shop at the end.
4: Well, it's not just a pretty book. The content is solid. And at several points in the book, they tap into the mythology of the Old West that Lucas was trying to create. Lucas grew up during the golden age of the Westerns and thought about it when he was in college as an anthropology major and thought about it later in film school and as an aspiring young filmmaker. And he said, quote, after I finished American Graffiti, I came to realize that since the demise of the Western, there hasn't been much in the mythological fantasy drama. So these are the seed thoughts that brought him to this futuristic cowboy uh, thought. And uh, the Western cowboys uh, have a counterpart in the East, in in Japan. Japan. The code by which the samurai live is very much like the code by which Western cowboys live. Uh, They're really big on freedom and independence. Uh, Courage, physical prowess is a must. An innate sense of justice. You don't have to show them a book with laws in it. They know what's right and wrong. And when necessary, the samurai and the cowboy, in a split breath, can unleash instant violence to help dispense the justice which they innately sense. These are also considered quintessential American values to this day. Freedom, independence, courage, physical prowess, justice, and sometimes violence. Right. Now, how does that tie in
1: with... Han's story is we see in Solo.
4: Okay. Thank you very much. What a great pivot. I'll pay you double.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I do what I can.
4: So I'm going to skip forward in my notes here a little bit because I'm going to share with you right now the screenwriter mind trick number three. So they have three Jedi mind tricks. I associate one that they used in this movie with each mythology. Here's the third one. Somewhere in a 90-minute movie, roughly five minutes into the movie, uh, sometimes it could be seven, sometimes it could be two. Someone other than the hero says something. It's either they ask a question or they make a statement in a non obvious, generally conversational way. But later in the movie, it has far reaching and meaningful impact. You just don't know it. So, one of my favorite examples in studying these bits, these Jedi mind tricks of Hollywood uh, Karate Kid, 1984. Daniel moves with his mom from New Jersey to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm and moves into this new apartment complex up the stairs. And one of the kids in the other apartment sees him and starts talking to him and immediately they're pals and they're, they're hauling boxes up the stairs into the apartment. And the new friend sees uh, Daniel with his hands full and books, I'm sorry, boxes stacked up to his face. And he, he reaches out with his leg and kicks the door open and says, hey man, that's a good skill. You might need that later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh.
3: What do they call that, foreshadowing? <laughs> <Yeah>. telegraphing, <But laughs> Telegraphing?
4: Telegraphing. <yeah. laughs> now that you know yeah. it's there, watch for it. In the first few minutes of the movie, it'll just seem like an innocuous statement, and you won't give it t- two thoughts. In Solo, a few minutes into the movie, when him and Kira are en route to the spaceport making their escape, she says, you know, a- after the escape, we won't take orders or be kicked around by anyone that's the dream and that's the theme of the movie that moment uh, is called the uh-huh. cinematic theme it's placed there on purpose they try you know like a great hunter how they cover their tracks and drop leaves and rake sand behind them so nobody can see their footprints and stuff a great screenwriter will put the theme in it but hide it as best as possible mm-hmm. and and i was looking for it and that one jumped right out at me on the second viewing As a counterpoint, when we look at Kira later, after years, when Han meets up with her again, she states a theme to her own life, not to the movie. She says, when Han wants to be free, you know, just like she stated at the beginning of the movie, we won't take orders from anybody, we won't get kicked around by anybody. She later opposes something he says and says, well, everybody serves somebody. Everybody serves someone. We live in a universe where the master-servant relationship is the only relationship. Uh, it's an unpleasant universe. True. Well, I hate to interrupt the conversation because it
3: is—it's uh, going so well. But if if I could, uh, just take a brief pause and thank our good friends at MeUndies. Now, take a moment to think about your your underpants. I know it's a—it's a little weird, but your first thought probably isn't they're awesome, which is why we want to tell you about MeUndies. They are comfy. They are awesome. Underpants—they'll make you. Well, they just make you feel good from the moment you put them on, and when you feel good, anything is possible. You know, I always say, "To look good is to feel
1: good." <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, that's all I got with my uh, ancient references to uh, Billy Crystal on Saturday Night Live, circa 1984.
3: Oh, wait a minute—that was that was what—that was Fernando's Hideaway. You look marvelous. Me undies make you look marvelous.
1: Me undies are made with a material sustainably sourced from beechwood trees. Their naturally soft fiber makes a fabric that won't sag down or ride up. And trust me,
3: once you put on a pair of me undies, you'll get it. Oh, that's so true doesn't sag down, doesn't ride up. You get underpants that are sent right to your door. You don't have to go out and hunt for the perfect pair at the store. You, you know, and you're not going to try on on underwear, right? I mean, that's that would be weird and gross. Uh and then you, you know, settle for something that's just good enough or cheap enough. No, no, no. no. This is the real deal. And they do and look good on you in those in those moments
1: when you know, usually you're alone when you're Look at yourself with the pants off. But if you happen to glance in the mirror and you're wearing me, if you're
3: married, you're alone (laughs) Uh, when that happens.
1: Well, no, but in in all honesty, in all honesty, there are times that I'll go to my health club and I will be, uh, you know, switching out of my street gear into my workout gear and I'll realize, oh, boy, I am uh, being seen in public right now with underpants that I've had since uh, 1993. uh, that's a weird thing mm. guys do. We have a hard time throwing yeah. away old underpants. But if you get me undies, you're going to notice the difference right away. I went to the club. I was changing. I had my me undies on. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to go walk around the locker room for a little while. I, you know, I was kind of showing off a little bit. And so that was the sort of, and it gives you confidence, too, knowing that what you're wearing underneath your clothes is as good as what you're wearing on the outside. And Me Undies is so sure you'll love your first pair that if you're not happy, they'll do whatever they can to get you into the right pair of undies. And if they can't, keep them and they'll refund you. So it's really risk free to try
3: the best underwear ever. And if you're still not sure, Me Undies has a deal for Rebel Force Radio listeners. First time purchasers will get 15% off their first pair of Me Undies and free shipping. That's 15% off plus free shipping and a guarantee that you. And your me undies will be very happy together.
1: So get your butt over to meundies.com slash RFR and treat yourself right now to get your 15% off your first pair, of free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go to meundies.com slash RFR. That's meundies.com slash RFR.
3: I just, you wouldn't believe this, John, but I, I was just, um, I, I pulled up Facebook and I swear to you that the very first thing that I see. Is uh, I'm sorry, this is on Twitter, excuse me, is uh, Stephen Stanton, who's an old friend here of the show. Um, he posted this. Give this a listen.
2: The mercenary solo begins as, uh, as a mercenary and ends up as a hero.
1: He was a, a very practical guy, a, uh, a materialist in his character, at least as he thought of himself. But he was a, a compassionate human being at the same time and didn't know it. The adventure evoked a quality
2: of his character that uh, he hadn't known he possessed.
3: I love you. I know.
1: He thinks he's an egoist. He really isn't. And uh, that's a very lovable kind of human being, I think, and there are lots of them functioning beautifully
2: in the world. They think they're working for themselves, very practical and all, but no, there's something else pushing them.
3: And that is from uh, The Power
1: of Myth. Yes, Joseph Campbell and The Power of Myth. That was Bill Moyer's PBS special that he did with Joseph Campbell back in... uh, It was actually released about a year after Campbell had passed away. It was released in 1988. And uh, it goes down as one of the most popular series in the history of public television. Bill Moyer's joseph campbell and the power of myth
4: the both and it
1: is
3: now available on Met- on netflix so if you're a oh that's right you can check that that's out That's right yeah. the
4: book's great the video's great and nine tenths of that quote uh i dropped at the beginning of this podcast yes so we yes. just beat it
3: yeah that's we right just <laughs> beat it.
4: but but you know what i believe the people who put this movie solo together paid heed to those words and carefully continued that very tradition in this movie and it's beautiful, and he is kind of serving himself to get freedom. But by getting freedom, he can help other people get freedom. So it's actually a a, uh, a virtue. It's not a selfish.
3: Do thing. you think that you think that the that Han Solo understands himself, uh, or does he have a sort of a funhouse mirror image of himself? Because it seems as though, you know, as Joseph Campbell says, that he sees himself as this egoist. He believes he's an egoist, but he's really not, and that makes for a very lovable character is that what makes han solo so appealing to us
4: yeah i would say it's contextually sensitive so for instance he might have a funhouse mirror image about what he's he is and what's going on but there's a point when he sees the world crystal clear when he had to blast greedo and a new hope and when he had to take out beckett in solo he, there was no warping in his mirror at all.
3: Now, which version of A New Hope you're you're referring to? Mm-hmm. The original Han shot first. Yeah, man. that's it.
1: <laughs> let's make that the only one we ever refer to. Right. What right. say? What say? But, yeah.
4: but but he. Yeah. I mean, if he is a smuggler and if he is a tough guy and if he's when it comes to those moments, he is. I mean, he really is.
3: And that is a really jarring. It's a real jarring scene because you got Woody Harrelson's character there. Um, who's, who's about to to monologue a bit and lecture Han about how he didn't get it right. And he j- blows him away right there. But then he immediately grabs him, and there's this uh, sense of grief. There is a compassion in coming. compassion. Yes, very compassionate. Well, there's,
4: there's, a, there's a statue in the Vatican that looks just like that moment, and it's beautiful. And um, remember I told you before that uh, Han's a hyper-optimist? and that the yes. problem with hyperoptimists is when the roof comes falling down you can't say oh it's not going to hit my head it's time to run okay you know, and the problem with hyperoptimists is they they don't have the agility to flick the switch and get to where they need to be. And pessimists, and that's where they get crushed in life. And Han does not seem to have that. In both the Greedo situation, he shot first, and in the uh, in, in, in in against Beckett, I expected both times I saw the movie, even though I knew what was happening the second time, I expected that moment to extend a few more beats until some moment happened where it was like bang bang, and one guy shot the other. But Han didn't hesitate. He knew what the moment was. He was that guy. And he's an optimist who knows how to flick the switch when pessimism and it's all its dark feelings call for it.
1: The statue you refer to in the Vatican is uh, something sculpted by Michelangelo. It's called Paeta. I'm probably saying that incorrectly, but it does show uh, what appears to be a, a... uh, the Virgin Mary holding Jesus Christ, and it's,
4: a, it's one of those considered most compassionate moments ever rendered in art, and it and, is beautiful. And, and I, I'm
1: looking at it right now, Michelangelo's Vatican Pieta, and it is uh, definitely re- reminiscent of that final sequence where Han is cradling the dying um, Beckett.
4: It's also one of my favorite moments in sports when i see a competitor they vie heavily one person just crushes the other person and then i mean it's just my, my favorite moments in sports i don't even care what the score is
1: you know in boxing we've seen so many big fights happen between two opponents who really appreciate and respect one another and they beat the hell out of each other for 12 rounds but at the end of the fight they're hugging each other
4: or or, or runners in the olympics where one breaks their leg or something the other one stops throws them over their shoulder and crosses the finish line oh. together kind of stuff you're making me verklemped here, Jimmy. I'm getting <laughs> verklemped. Yeah.
3: yeah, ultimate sportsmanship.
4: And so, what does what
3: does the you know Han you know killing Beckett? Uh, if we look at this hero's journey, what does that represent? Is that Han replacing Beckett in the universe as the new Beckett?
4: Well, just like Dryden Voss falls out, and uh, Kira's going to spend a lot more time with. Uh, uh, the Sith, um, in this m- uh, universe where everybody is master and servant, everybody's a cog in the wheel, right? So once one gets knocked out, the others come along and suck them up. But what I think was the moment there with Beckett was, was a few things. One, as I just pointed out, it showed that when necessary, Han knows that there's pessimism to be had, and then act upon it with great I mean, almost athletic athleticism, the speed with which he, he dispatches these bastards. Anyway, uh the 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 bigger thing happens though is this. From the moment the movie starts, from the opening image, when he's trying to spark together that that ride and get away, and I on the second I was shocked at how good the actor was at showing real like I'm about to die. I got to get out of here in his face. I thought it was a wonderful moment. Um, From that first moment of the movie up until the moment he zaps Beckett, Han is not free. At every moment in the movie, he's serving somebody else. Or if he has a fleeting moment of freedom, he he doesn't have any power or money or fuel or ship or anything to do with it. So, for instance, at first he serves Lady Proxima. Then he throws a rock through the glass and makes a run for it. Then he serves the Imperial Force Mm -hmm. because they impress him and he's trying to get away from from the bad guys. Then when he breaks away from the Imperial Force, he's begging Beckett, let me be on your team. So when he's under Beckett's thumb. Then when he screws up the the train robbery and lets the load go, according to Beckett, they both go and serve under Dryden. And then they're serving under Dryden until they get to uh, the uh, place where it's refined when Enfys Nest shows up and... Has him covered with all the guns. So he's constantly in a universe where, from probably the day he was born, he hasn't had a free moment. And the minute he zaps Beckett, it's him, it's Chewy, and it's 60 million units. There's no more Dryden Voss. The yacht just flew away. He's free.
1: Right. And with the yacht flying away, I think that also represents another level of freedom to Han because he had been fighting essentially motivated for all of these years to reunite with his girl Kira but by removing herself from the situation she also is able to give Han even more freedom
4: agreed great point
1: great point because, and- because he's he's now motivated for himself He's not motivated to save her or bring her, rescue well, her or anything. She's already been liberated and is on her own journey at this point. And even if Han laments the fact that he's no longer with her, he knows that she is... In control of her own destiny, which is more information than he had during those years when he was fighting for the Imperial forces, thinking, my girl has been left behind on Corellia, and she's probably being abused, misused, and held in captivity. Now at least he knows she is on her own path, and she
4: has her own—she's been liberated. And, and he's, he's free of having to go back and rescue her, too. Right. Which was, was nagging, if you, if you will. Sorry to use the word nagging when it comes to uh, a love interest. But, you know, going back to the mythology of the teenager, the, the young man falling in love with a girl. Sometimes breaking up is not easy to do. There's a lot of songs from the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and right now about that. And I know uh, one off the top of my head. <laughs> breaking up is hard to yes. do. Yes. Yeah. And so she did it for him. And that's freeing. Because sometimes, like, look, if she's right and he's the good guy, then... The good guy sucks at breaking up with the girlfriend. So she took off and freedom of that. But his freedom is like kind of fleeting. Like In that universe, what, what is the freedom he has? He doesn't really have freedom until he gets the Falcon. Now, at the very end of the movie. And then literally, the last scene, the last seconds. I don't even know if it's minutes. The last seconds. Han is truly free. He's, with the he's love, finally, yes. With the love of his life and a big, hairy, fun dude. <laughs> but, but... Not
3: to rain on this parade, but who is he on his way to go see? Right, fool. The, uh, the, the, the next one that's going to put him in enslavement.
4: Well, that's, that's if the deal goes wrong.
3: All right, well, right. Of course, we know it does. Right.
4: He's not a very good smuggler, then, is he? <laughs> <laughs> Because he, he's not a very good bad I guy. I mean, let's look. Uh, l- he, let's break it down like a baseball mathematician would, like at b- bats and stuff. He gets mm-hmm. he gets the chance to um, um, smuggle uh, or, or grab the train that, and he's flying the ship, and that goes wrong. He's got to ditch that. I know he does something wrong later that pisses John. Well, even before huddle. that, uh, well,
3: even before that, John, he he. He ticks off Lady Proxima. Yes. He's supposed to bring something back to them. Okay, that's a bad deal. It's almost deal. got this Oliver Twist thing going on where she's sort of like the Fagin character. And, you know, he's, he's got to go out and steal and bring the, the booty back to her.
4: Perfectly said. Because when he returns, before he explains it to her, check out the scene where the little Fagin kids are there. And one of the kids says oh, look at what I stole. I'll get a second unit for this. Oh, like, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, right. Please, I may have another, yeah, right? Yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, was, They weren't being too discreet about that. But okay, so he, yeah. he blows it for Proxima. He blows the train robbery. He does pull off in 12 parsecs when you round it down. He does pull off the <laughs> uh, the uh, unrefined haul, but then he kind of blows it at the end, but then he kind of gets it at the end, but then he gives it away at the end. So it's not like he's going to cash it away. And then he goes and works for John and he blows it so like i mean from the facts we know and we don't know everything but the from the facts we know he is not heading to town. <laughs> no they're not, he will not have a, a plaque in the hall of fame of
3: smugglers oh. no no question about it oh no. <laughs> yeah wow uh, john this has been incredibly insightful and uh what an amazing breakdown of a character that i think a lot of us felt we knew backwards and forwards and and, and even after seeing this film uh, I think a lot of us felt that it just sort of uh, confirmed many things that we uh, believed about this character for so many years. But you really did uh, provide incredible insight. And and you know, Luke Skywalker may be a hero, and he may be a big hero in the Star Wars mythos, but he's not the only hero. Han Solo has quite his own hero's journey, which I really appreciate you. Uh sharing with us this week. This has just been a lot of fun. Oh,
4: it's my pleasure because I get to absorb all the positive and optimistic things that Han's radiating and I got to scent it through my mythological filters and I got to share the positivity with you and I, I hope the whole thing was uplifting. That was my main hope here.
1: It was well, fantastic. What do you think, Chewie? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So, <laughs> thumbs up from the Wook and, yes. uh, and, and, and I, I am relieved you you didn't analyze the film and discover that the real romance was between Han and Chewie, I I don't know. <laughs> Those long nights in hyperspace, you know. <laughs> they, they
4: did shower together in this movie. That's right. That's true. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for coming by, John. Hey, thanks, gentlemen. I, I can't wait for the next movie to come out. Please invite me back. I'm there in a minute.
1: Well, you know, why wait till the next movie? We have so many other Star Wars films we haven't gotten your mythological take on. I'm in. So maybe we can look back at the original trilogy or the prequel trilogy and hear your mythological blue Prints for
3: guys like Anakin Skywalker, or uh, I've got one for John. Who's this? I've got I, I've got one that I would like John to maybe put some thought into, uh, and that is uh, Obi Wan Kenobi. This is a character that is going to most likely feature in his own story, maybe several stories. We don't know, ah. but this guy has a bit of a checkered past, and there's two big things that stick out to me as. Massive blunders of Obi Wan Kenobi, and it's not this uh, thing that he laments about. I thought I could train him just as well as Yoda. I was wrong. I, I think I don't feel that Obi Wan made any massive mistakes in in the training of of Anakin. And I know, and I don't want to fill your head with you know my own thoughts, but the two big things that he does that I think are questionable is one, he cannot bring it upon himself to really finish the job on Mustafar and think of how different the galaxy might have been had he done that Mm. and number two uh, certain point of view or no one could argue that he really is manipulating Luke uh, through a new hope and even into uh, Empire Strikes Back so that's it I think that's you know those two things make me very very uh, interested in that character? I'm I'm a big Obi Wan Kenobi fan. I I really am. So I'm not trying to come down on the character, but for a hero, um, those those two things really I, I'm fascinated.
4: By. I, I like both of those. My initial reaction to the first point: Why didn't he finish this off? Same thing happened in the Lord of the Rings. He could have thrown the ring and could have thrown it into the fire. <laughs> we wouldn't have yeah, to do right, all this, yeah. right? So there, I, I'm going to chase that down for you. And then the second mm-hmm. point you talked about, which was he was manipulating him. That's a beautiful mythological point about the mystagogue, the old man, the wise old creature out of the forest. Somebody comes out and not only shares some essentialist instruction – for the hero to move forward, but usually also provides, uh, an amulet or a power source or something to protect them along the way, like a chain of armor or a lightsaber, for instance. So they're, uh-huh. they're supposed to be manipulative, but only in the best way, the way in elementary and high school teachers are supposed to manipulate her into becoming a better person. And a, a good functioning member of society. But I, I'm sensing from what you said was that you feel that Obi-Wan was probably pushing a little too far and over manipulating, uh, Potentially. Okay. Potentially. I think right. he did it for the greater good.
3: Um, but I have, I have had friends and, and, and fellow fans uh, argue the point a little bit. of Why, why, why is this guy such a hero? He, he lied to Luke. Um, he wasn't able to get the job done when, when it really mattered with Anakin. Well,
4: he had some of the best lines in history because they basically fed him the lines of a Zen master. So, I mean, everything wins. I mean, only, only Yoda yeah. had, had cooler <laughs> lines really like that yeah
3: yeah but uh anyway so you're welcome back here anytime Watch. anytime Jason thank and, you uh, Jimmy. thank you oh uh, you're, you're fantastic uh, you're fa- you, you are a treasure man you are a treasure and I I uh I I encourage everyone to check it out uh the unauthorized uh illustrated biography of Bruce Lee poised a pummel check that out we're excited to uh, uh be one of the first to know when the Bob Marley book is going to be out and um are you are you active online, social media anywhere? Where uh, if folks want to hear what you have to say, because you really should be out there in terms of you know maybe mm. blogging or, or or something. I'm more like Obi
4: Wan at the beginning of A New Hope. Man, you got to find me in the cave.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I'm happy to be a uh, part of the team that's bringing you to the masses um, because you know what? You're so centered, and uh, I, I think that social media would just uh, would just throw you for a loop so let's let's keep you shielded from that mm. we're gonna keep you mm. our little secret let's keep it fresh boys yes
1: yeah <laughs> john marcu thank you so mm-hmm. much for joining us here on rebel force radio with your amazing and mind-blowing mythological blueprint for han solo as seen in solo a star
0: wars story
4: i got a really good feeling about this
0: Get full access to RFR only on Patreon. Become a member of the RFR Patreon community to get more Rebel Force Radio. Bonus shows and content are available right now only at patreon.com slash Radio. Exclusive programming like RFR Rush Hour. Join Jimmy and Jason on the ride home. RFR Rewind. Look back at some of the show's greatest moments. RFR Q&A featuring you as the show host moderating the conversation for at least a full half hour. Plus, get full stereo high-fidelity episodes of the latest RFR, early access to RFR events, ringtones, exclusive updates, giveaways, and more. Become a member of the RFR Patreon community to get it all, and your contributions will help keep RFR alive for years to come. It all happens at patreon.com slash Radio. Don't wait. Visit Patreon today to get all access to RFR. Patreon.com slash Radio i have good news for you my lord that's good news come closer i have good news
3: whoa yeah we've got news i don't know if you'd call it good i'd call it conflicting uh but it all started with a piece uh, over on collider exclusive that means only they have this Future a Star Wars story spinoffs on hold at Lucasfilm. It may be a while before we see any more movies like Solo, a Star Wars story, out of Lucasfilm. Sources with knowledge of the situation. I love that. That's a that's a great that's a great source. <laughs> Sources with knowledge of the situation tell Collider that Lucasfilm has decided to put plans for more a Star Wars story spinoff movies on hold. Instead, opting to focus their attention on Episode Nine and what the next trilogy of Star Wars films will be after that. Sources tell us that the previously rumored Obi-Wan movie, which was in active development, but those who were working on the film are no longer involved. It was recently, rep- recently reported that Logan filmmaker James Mangold, who was in early talks to write and direct the Boba Fett film, uh, but that was before Solo's release. All right. So again, according to Collider, they're claiming it is a an exclusive that the spin-off films, A Star Wars Story, um, are no longer in active development. Jim, well, what do you think? Uh, does this does this line up with where you think
1: things are right now? Oh, absolutely, I do. Absolutely, I do. I think that uh, a, a serious reset is uh, in order. For Lucasfilm, I think that they uh, have uh, decided to concentrate on Episode 9 because I think that's where uh, there's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure on that movie. And so all resources are going to be directed toward that film. And you have here about a year and a half to uh, make sure all the uh, proper pieces are in place. Um, there's going to be additional distractions. The live-action TV series is still uh, greenlit. Um there's going to be, of course, the uh, Resistance uh, animated show, but I mean that mm-hmm. really shouldn't affect how a major movie studio works. But when it comes to things like marketing and PR, it most certainly does. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, that's for sure. Now there is more detail uh, over at Star Wars Newsnet, and they've got a few more uh, little. They got they've got the Collider quote, and then they've got a few more details, and and these are very interesting. So check these out. Um. Now they don't name a source. They just say that this is additional information that they have heard. Uh, in light of the director change and having to nearly reshoot the entire movie, Lucasfilm wanted to move Solo: A Star Wars Story to December 2018. Now we've heard this. We've heard this before, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, episode Episode Seven was moved from a May release to a December release. J.J. Uh, Abrams lobbied for that. Uh, I believe Rogue One was also moved. Uh, I know two of the movies so far had uh, release dates that had been switched.
1: Yes. Uh, Well, obviously, you know, uh, just to go back in in time and talk about uh, things like uh, release dates getting shuffled around and what have you. Yeah, you have to go back to Episode 7, which was originally Scheduled to be released in summer 2015, this mm-hmm. was confirmed at D23 by I believe Alan Horn. Uh, actually, said the uh, summertime release for episode seven, but that got pushed back. JJ Abrams, uh, from what we understood, demanded more time. He needed more time to uh, work out things because uh, obviously he uh, got thrown into. Uh, He got thrown for a loop when he uh, the decision was made to completely revamp the script that was prepared by Michael Arndt under the guidance of George Lucas. Well, they threw that script out. So that pushed things back because now J.J. Abrams, in addition to finding himself prepping to direct a Star Wars film, he's also now the screenwriter. So they yeah. they bring Lawrence Lawrence Kasdan over from the solo movie. He was actually working on the solo movie all the way back then. And um and they put that on the shelf, brought Lawrence in and he and JJ banged out that script and they kept it to that December release. And with the success of the December release, that seemed like a good place to start parking Star Wars films. So uh, moving forward, you get to Rogue One, and that is uh scheduled for the December of the next year. That has to be reshot and restructured uh, about... Uh, the, the final third of the film, absolutely completely restructured. And so that cost more. That that raised the budget up. So now you have two situations happening here where the, the run-up time to the first film was extended by six months, obviously costing more money. And then the the follow-up film the next year, that had delays and reshoots and all kind of business going on, which obviously blew the budget way out out of hand. Meanwhile, the Josh Trank debacle happens as he's developing what was rumored to be the Boba Fett film. So that whole project blows up. And uh, Lawrence Kasdan just uh, finishes uh, uh, writing... uh, the Force Awakens, the film gets released, uh, he's exhausted from the process, and they say, hey, you gotta do the solo film again, because the Boba Fett thing blew up. He's like, you're doing the solo thing again? So he's shocked. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> so they... And, then he, did, and then, he, then he just shoves it off to his son. Well, yeah, that's how John Kasdan yeah. got brought in. Right,
2: right. right.
1: And so um, they work together on that, because Larry's exhausted. and uh, And so that's back on. So uh, things keep getting shuffled around now. Meanwhile, uh, things are going on behind the scenes to launch a live-action show, in a, a, an amusement park. But, of course, that kind of stuff, for the most part... Is, no, actually, it is all under the Lucasfilm umbrella. Even the, the amusement park stuff, because the concepts and the creative energy behind it, a lot of that, right. I think, is coming from Lucasfilm in conjunction with Disney Imagineering. So uh, a a lot of stuff is happening, right? And and so I think Reese's resources are starting to get really stretched thin here now. By the time the solo film is in front of cameras and blows up because the the directing team is found to be incompatible with the studio and so they throw away the whole film, how it got to be how it got that far in the process before something was done you know i mean it's hard to know because everything is is behind uh, it, it's all you know it, it's all just left to us to piece together from the information that gets leaked or from interviews that we listen to etc but uh, of course yeah that blows up so they have to like reshoot the whole film and that blows up that budget so now you've had one two three four films that have all gone over budget um And and when I I say the four films, I'm including The Force Awakens in there. Even though that thing was a big, monstrous box office draw, it still ended up costing the studio more to produce it than they obviously had out on the table at first because it was extended by six months. So all those people, all those resources, all that technology, you have to pay for all that stuff. And so... Luckily, The Force Awakens made huge box office. Luckily, Rogue One made huge box office. Luckily, The Last Jedi made huge box office. The Last Jedi, obviously, being the only one that really seemed to carry on very smoothly throughout the pre-production shooting schedule. But then the release happened. And sure, the box office was great, but it is going down in history as the most divisive film in Star Wars history. Uh, yeah. and, and as a result then, um, and a number of factors involved, when Solo finally gets released, then the box office is flat, and so now the fingers are all being pointed. And they look at that Solo film as not being a
3: one-film loss, but a two-film loss, because it had to be shot twice. So yeah. everything's right. over budget. Right. Good point, good point. And, and the budget numbers that we've seen... That have been released uh, have all been around the Lord Miller uh, time period. They have not really given us uh, even estimates, although you know a lot of different folks have kind of run their own estimates as what they think the Ron Howard reshoots cost. Plus, you got the you know the cost of Ron Howard himself. All of that. So, the, you know, the hit on Solo could be anywhere between eighty and one hundred and fifty million dollar loss, and that's not good. Uh, but here's what's interesting. So even though you know they they had made these adjustments in the release schedule before, uh, apparently Disney put their foot down with solo and they said it's it, it's not gonna it's not gonna happen. Um, so they granted them the the budget um, to make the changes that they needed, but they had to make the may twenty fifth release date. And in addition to that, uh, they weren't going to let Solo interfere with any plans for Avengers Infinity War. Mm -hmm. So Solo was not going to get any preferential treatment in marketing to make up for lost time due to its reshoots that lasted all the way into the fall of 2017. Now, why do you think that is? Because the the previous three films released
1: under the Disney umbrella were very successful films. And the marketing for them was all really solid. Especially yeah. the Force Awakens, but considering you have that extra time, and and also with the Force Awakens, I'm telling you, this is how they think in the boardroom when they're breaking it all down, and they say, "Wow, the Force Awakens! It made like two billion dollars, you know, worldwide or something—unbelievable uh, numbers." Uh, but uh, you know, uh, it cost us so much extra because it was under production for an extra six months. <clears throat> And so they go. Well, you know, if 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 it didn't just go that extra six months, we could have made this much more money on it. And that's how they mm-hmm. look at things. So, you yeah. Know, so, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they're always, and that's Hollywood. And they always are looking for a scapegoat or what have you. I'm not looking for a scapegoat here, but I am, you know, thinking to myself, this is an opportune moment for the brakes to be applied, just maybe ever so slightly, and pull back and reevaluate where this thing is going.
3: Well, you know, this article here, it it does point out, which is, you know, Disney is in a place now where it does control uh, so many of the large properties that are bankable at the box office, from the Pixar films to the Marvel Universe, now Star Wars. And it's a juggling act. I mean, it used to be that they had to worry about what other studios are doing. Now they have to worry more about what they're doing. Um, But, you know, it's funny because you mentioned, you know, George, by the way, I forgot that was the the first person essentially that they fired. Um, But if you look at the body count associated with uh, these movies, uh, who have we lost or who has lost credibility along the way? George Lucas, Michael Arndt, Josh Trank, Gareth Edwards, Phil Lord, Chris Miller and then Colin Trevorrow. Colin Trevorrow, by the way, who's about to have a big week. This week because the release of Jurassic Park Two, early buzz is that it's fantastic. And he was recently quoted as saying that the uh, his the culture at Lucasfilm uh during his time of working on episode nine was acidic. Acidic. Some might even say toxic, which is a very uh uh common word. Now the, the people that have survived this JJ Abrams, Ryan Johnson, and Lawrence Kasdan. I'm not even going to say John Cassian because the, the, to me the two of them are exactly the same. <laughs> so I'm not going to give it, I'm not going to give him credit for two bodies because it, you know. Uh, but but if you look at this, I mean one, two, three, four, five, six, seven uh, versus three. These aren't just look. These aren't just firings, man. I mean these are these are people with solid reputations. You know, as we talk about the future of Lucasfilm and what's going on in this major reshuffling. I have to believe that Disney finally kind of woke up. I'm going to say, and and I know it's, you know, there's all kinds of rumors. I think Kathleen Kennedy is out of there. I think she's gone. I think that the story group is going to be neutered. I think that they, and there's another story that just broke about how Lucasfilm isn't going to be banking on these um, kind of uh, auteur uh, directors anymore. They don't want these. Uh, you know, young uh, flavor of the month directors. They're going after people that are skilled, that are competent, that are uh, very, very familiar with how to run a blockbuster uh, operation. Uh, So you just can't, you just can't toss guys like Miller and Lord, Colin Trevorrow, who I think is going to be, I think again, he's going to have a great week. His name's going to be on top. People are going to be like, geez, geez, Why couldn't we have a guy like that uh, making a Star Wars movie? Um, Gareth Edwards, who played the good soldier, but everybody knows the film was yanked out of his hands after he basically gave them the movie that they said that they wanted, then it turned out to not be what they actually wanted. Um, You got Trank, and I hear he's got his own problems, but they yanked him out of there pretty fast. Michael Arndt, who's bankable. Toy Story, what are you going to do? And George Lucas, the creator of all of it. When you stack all that up, It doesn't look good, because not only are you firing these people, but you're also, I think, soiling their reputations. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, it's
1: Hollywood, and Hollywood could be the cruelest place, and then sometimes it can be um, kind of a forgiving place, because it seems like the same people always get hired over and over
3: again. Yeah, it is what have you done for me lately. Yeah. So, you know, the people forget very, very quick. Uh, when there's money on the line, but um, uh, getting back to this article here, they they do say that uh, Lucasfilm is returning focus to one project at a time per medium. So uh, in development, of course, Episode Nine on the live action film front, Star Wars Resistance uh, still being headed up by Dave Filoni, the animation team, uh, and John Favreau's live action TV series. Um, now we're getting some conflicting reports because we're also hearing that the Ryan Johnson's trilogy. As well as the trilogy from the Game of Thrones guys, those are still uh in development yes it was these these standalone central hero or or you know, s- you know singular hero or character uh films that are uh, the ones that are being uh tossed to the wayside, which is you know what's funny you know if you were to go to Vegas and put odds on all these different projects and say which one you think was going to make the most money mm-hmm. um a completely uncharted unknown time and 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 place in the star wars universe three films talk about doubling down tripling down by ryan johnson the writer and director of the most divisive star wars film in history versus the obi-wan kenobi marooned on tatooine story which one do you think is going to make sorry you and (laughs) mcgregor Starring Ewan McGregor. Right. Who who, by the way, I mean, is Obi-Wan Kenobi. Not, I mean, not just for the prequel generation, but you know, we don't have Alec Guinness anymore. Sorry, he is Obi-Wan Kenobi. So you still got him. He's still around. He's still game. He wants to do this. So you know, I, I understand Lucasfilm wants to focus. I would have 86 Ryan Johnson's trilogy. I'd have put this other uh trilogy with these Game of Thrones guys on ice. I'd have kept that Obi-Wan. Because no one universally to a person, everyone is excited about that Obi One movie.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Every you know both sides of the coin.
1: Hey, you know what? Um, before we dive any further into this, we mm-hmm. do have to you know remind ourselves that no one from Lucasfilm ever announced these films, the Boba, that Fett a good point. or it the Obi One. So it's, you know, this is a report about something being shelved or put on hold for now
3: that we're not even really supposed to know about. <laughs> right. That was never officially announced. That is, that is, a, great, that is a great point. However, yeah, yeah. with the names attached
1: <laughs> and the uh, reputation of the sources providing that news, sources like The Hollywood Reporter... Um, sources like Collider, which I think is a reputable source, I think that these were leaks done purposefully to gauge fan reaction yeah. to the ideas. Yep. Um, odd that the Game of Thrones guys trilogy and the Ryan Johnson trilogies were officially announced. I think their their plan is their strategy is to roll out. The Game of Thrones guys, they're a series of films. I shouldn't say trilogy. They're series of films. Series, right, right. Um, that's how the wording was in the press release. Series of films. So that's at least two movies. But I uh-huh. think those are movies that would appeal to a more mature audience. And mm. the Ryan Johnson trilogy is being crafted to appeal to a more youthful audience. I think they're trying yeah. to play it that way. I think they're trying to play on demographics and you know maybe create something that's edgier you know I I don't even know even though yeah. R-rated it's, Star Wars maybe yeah. but I don't see
3: it, it, Disney doing R-rated Star Wars. I don't see I don't think so either. I think that Disney believed that the you know Lucasfilm was just going to proceed in a sort of uh, orderly fashion, the same as the Marvel Cinematic Universe has. The big difference being is that, that Marvel is a bunch of little franchises, and uh, I, I, I'm not belittling it, but what I'm saying is it's, it's a collection of different characters that have their own backstories and their own kind of uh, separate uh, lives away from each other. Every once in a while they get together, they team up, blah, blah, blah. But Star Wars has always been one singular story. Star Wars has always been one canon and Star Wars fans, myself included, we take canon very seriously. And so this idea that you can just bounce around timelines, and everything, it's going to create confusion amongst casual movie uh, goers I think they've got to be real careful about how they present. You know, for us, those of us uh, doing a podcast like this or or listening to a podcast like this, of course, we know when Solo takes place. We know when Rogue One took place. We know when Last Jedi took place. But as we've covered here on the show before, it can be really confusing for a general audience. Even people who consider themselves fans, people who like Star Wars, they go to the movie. They're like, now, when does this one take place? Mm-hmm. What am I seeing? Wait. Wait, is that Han Solo? He just died. Where's Ray? Where, you know, you just, and that's probably seems laughable to some people, but you got to think like someone who is not so steeped into this stuff. Um, Now, that was Collider. That was uh, the, um, the folks over at StarWarsNewsNet.com. Just today, an article by our buddy at uh, ABC News, uh, Clayton Sandell, uh, he says multiple films still in Star Wars pipeline. So he has sources, of course, at Lucasfilm. Now, in full disclosure here, Clayton's writing for ABC. ABC is a subsidiary of Disney. Disney owns Lucasfilm, so you, know, you, you do the math. But uh, Lucasfilm sources on Thursday characterized as, quote, inaccurate a report. Obviously, the Collider report that future Star Wars movies falling outside of the regular trilogy storyline, episode one to nine, have been put on hold in the wake of the box office underperformance of Solo, a Star Wars story. Now, that's not exactly what the Collider story was saying. The Collider story was saying that those individual individual character study films like Solo, like uh, Obi-Wan, like Boba Fett, those are now no longer off the table. In this article, there's v- he's very specifically saying future Star Wars movies falling outside of the regular trilogy storyline, episodes one to nine, have been put on hold. Uh, that is an inaccurate, inaccurate report. When Collider does admit that the Ryan Johnson trilogy, as well as the Game of Thrones guys, uh, f- series of films, as you point out, Jim, are still uh, in development. And those are technically outside of episodes one to nine here. So they're not actually denying what's being said. (laughs) They might be denying the headline, but they're not denying the guts of the story. I hear you. And so does Collider writer
1: Stephen Frosty Weintraub, who wrote the initial report. Uh, He uh, tweeted out uh, just earlier this evening. My report is accurate, double-sourced, ABC is owned by Disney, perhaps trust the independent site that has a pretty good track record. So what he's saying there is uh, he recognizes ABC's report, and I, I don't mean to disparage Clayton at all. He's a great guy and a awesome, amazing uh, journalist, and he has the utmost credibility. But he just might be caught in the middle of something here where one Disney branch is trying to um, spin something for another Disney branch. And that's, that's what kind of scares me when I think about now Disney is going to be getting 20th Century Fox. It looks like it, they have uh, – th- th- there's been competition with the bids, but it looks like Disney is going to come out on top of that one. It's like how much can one company control – especially when it comes to things like entertainment platforms and media platforms. Yeah. When they work together, when one is, is using the other to be a spokesperson, then I think it gets to be a little confusing.
3: And, uh, so well, it sure is. I mean, it sure is. I mean, cause right now, despite, you know, our affection for Clayton, um, you know, we're, we're kind of skeptical. You know, say well. It's you know, it it's not unusual that you know parent company subsidiary would be backing up. You know, it, it it does. It is a little odd, right? It's odd, and it there may it may be completely innocent, and this may be uh, extraordinarily accurate, but at the same time, because of the. The inbred nature of all of this, it does raise eyebrows, perhaps where eyebrows shouldn't be raised or perhaps where they should be. I don't know. It seems like spin control. If
1: you want the honest to goodness truth, I put more faith and credibility in the report that came from Steve Weintraub at Collider.
3: Yeah, I got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with you now. If you look at, excuse me, if you look at uh, Disney stock, uh, it, uh, it doesn't look good. Um, going back here, um, it, it's, it's a little bit up and down. It's been in a downward, uh, trend for the last five days. Uh, and you know, so some of these things, I mean, look, if you're a Disney shareholder and you're hearing that this slate of movies that you were promised was going to, you know, bring the company, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, are now, uh, on ice, Um, you've got chaos happening at Lucasfilm, which, you know, I, I don't know how else you would describe it. You know, I mean, uh, we can be good soldiers, but at the same time, the fact of the matter is as much as I love star Wars, you look at the body count, uh, you look at the, um, antagonistic attitude that is being taken by employees of Lucasfilm and this kind of, uh, you know, uh, us versus them thing that's going on. And as you'll find out, you know, later we've got an email that we're going to share that uh, kind of puts it all in perspective, at least from a, you know, corporate Disney uh, point of view. It's just, uh, there's no other words really to describe it. It is not good. It's not a good scene. And... I think that it's at the end of the day I think it's kind of like, you know, a big storm that comes in uh, at springtime and and just cleans cleans everything off. And even though the storm is kind of ugly and scary and violent at times, at the end I think you're dealing with something better than it was when it started. And I and I do believe that. I do believe that this is uh growing pains. I think Disney is is trying very very hard uh, but I think that they 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 left the kid alone at home and he was too young. Well, I think it was just a case of too much, too fast.
1: And um, but why? Why do you think that was? Jim? Why do you think? Because they looked at what Marvel was doing and thought that Star Wars can, yeah. you know, the, it's, yeah. a, it's a square peg trying to fit it into a round hole. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars uh depended on uh, the strength of the mythology depended on that incubation
3: period between yeah. the films. Yes. Giving giving fans time to digest and assimilate and 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 uh I mean as silly as it sounds even just uh, you know the <laughs> collecting all of the 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 toys and the merch and reading the 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 behind the scenes stuff I mean we in the past, we had years uh, to uh, just digest it all. And now it's coming at you so fast, you can't help but feel that, you know, it's it's rushed. Mm-hmm. It's rushed. And if you look at the—I think a lot of the problems with The Last Jedi were that they simply didn't have time— to really understand what was happening with the force awakens in order to create, you know, a, a satisfying sequel to that. I mean, people say, oh, but well, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, Ryan Johnson wrote this thing, having never seen force awakens. Well, guess what? He hadn't, <laughs> no one had, he was writing this thing at the time that force awakens was still in production. All right. So let me ask you a question. If things
1: are being put on hold, What's the finish line here? I mean, if episode nine is a huge success, fans love it, the box office public loves it, it makes a ton of money, Disney loves it, everyone loves it. It brings and it brings fandom back together. Mm-hmm. Then do you think they say, "All right, go and green light everything that's been put on hold"? Or no, yeah, they're they're going to they start their less. Hopefully, start showing a little more discretion and not fart out stuff that's important parts of this mythology uh i think that's very important and again give us that time to let the mythology grow the three year span between the saga films are definitely something that is an important part of that mix uh you can have maybe one film you drop in right in the middle of that three year span i think that would work much better
3: it really would. I've got, an, I've got an analogy that I want to throw out there. Um, and, and, and just bear with me on this. When you see a really, really great play, oftentimes it's the silences in between the lines of dialogue that say more than the actual dialogue does. And it's a, it's, it's a hard thing to explain, but when the acting is so fantastic... You know whether it be the body language or what have you, or the pregnant pauses, when it's acted and performed so well, or even in 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 a piece of music where it it swells, it crescendos, and then it gets quieter. I think that Jim, when you talk about that, the you know a two or three year gap in between these, I think that those are just as important as what we're seeing on the screen, especially for fandom, the time to, uh, as I say digest, understand, make sense of and add it to the existing uh, mythology. I don't know what the right answer is, you know whether it be a year, two years, three years, I don't think there's necessarily a, a magic number um, but having that time and so time for the fans as well as times for the time for the the, the creative teams that are that are putting these things together. Um, I think it was also a just a dreadful, terrible mistake to have to think that they could do this trilogy of films without a singular vision behind it. I, I mean it just it doesn't make any sense. And you can say, well, George Lucas did it. George Lucas wrote that letter to JJ Abrams and the and the and the uh the folks behind Lost and said, Well, you know, my hat's off to you. Here's a dirty little secret. I I I too was making it up as I went along. But it was out of one singular guy's mind. So it's okay if it's out of one person's brain that you're making it up as you go along. But but instead of playing this silly game of I'm going to start out a story and then I'm going to say tag you're it and not give you anything else and wonder why there's not cohesion and wonder why it creates division. Well, you know what I –
1: I'm okay with that, you know. Hey, let's just throw it up against the wall and see if it sticks. I, you know, I I think there's something to be said for that. But I I, I agree that with a property like this and with the the wide breadth of the mythology, it did uh, require a little bit more stewardship. And so that's why I think that after episode nine is released, uh, there still won't be any announcements about other plans to do any films or anything like that. All resources will go toward episode nine. In 2020, Bob Iger will most likely announce who his successor is going to be. And then at that point, that person is going to start segueing in as Iger works out through the the end of his contract, which, which he has a contract signed through December 2021. The reason... Now, and Iger has made attempts to start his uh the 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 progression of his stepping down but he keeps getting his contract extended because of deals like the looming 20th century fox deal Uh so they want you know the the board of directors want to keep the consistency and the stability there in the big office and so bob is going to stick around until december 2021 which leads me to believe that in 2020 the decision about his successor will be made and announced. And, uh, the two of them will work together throughout the course of the following, the the final year of Bob's contract. And, uh, I mean, that's all just mere guesswork, you know, but uh-huh, uh-huh. this is a big company. I don't see Bob's, you know, saying, you know, on December 2021, here's the new guy. See ya, I'm out. You know, <laughs> I think it's good. It's a very complex process.
3: No, I, I I, if you know what, if I had to guess I, what the conversation might have been like, it, you know, Bob Iger calls up Kathleen Kennedy and says, there's a problem. Fix it. I, I, I kid you not. That's how it works. hmm. There's a problem. You fix it, or you're gone. Because if I'm Bob Iger and I'm seeing these headlines about you know Star Wars, uh, you know being ripped down the middle and all of this contention, and I've got a 150 million dollar loss, and uh, you know essentially I bankrolled agreed to bankroll two movies, uh, or the cost of two movies for one movie. I'm not going to be very happy. This does not. This does not look well in this sort of. Um, you know, wishy-washy, uh, hire them and fire them. And now we've got we, – look, think about all the people that were associated most likely with the Kenobi film, uh, with this uh, Boba Fett film. Uh, now, now these people, um, they're gone, right? I mean, and, and I mean, I'm not crying buckets for them. They're going to go on to other things. These are, I'm sure, very talented people. Um, so you add them to the body count. This is not good. You know, it's, it, it's a big town, but it's a small town. And you do not want people to go like Colin Trevorrow saying, you know what? It was a completely acidic environment. And, you know, you're going to have people say, ain't no way. I, I love Star Wars, but I'm not taking that gig. I'm not going to be the next Colin Trevorrow. I'm not going to be the the next Phil Lord or Chris Miller. They don't want that. And Bob Iger and Alan Horn, they don't want that out there in the, uh, in the business, in the industry, saying that this is some sort of uh, – uh, I don't know, uh, bad luck charm or or kiss of death when you sign a sign on to do do something that should be you know the 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 highlight of your life of your career working on a Star Wars movie it should be a blessing. One other thing, speaking of breaking news, uh, our friends over at Fanthatrax, uh they they hit on this over the weekend. Dateline June eighteenth, Fantatrax is saying, look. After eight months and 3,000 posts, you're familiar enough with Fanfa Tracks to know that our main stock and trade is daily news and lots of it. So with that in mind, we're about to drop another juicy piece of news on you. Many will consider this a spoiler. So, in all fairness,
1: Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler
3: alert! Here you go! With the current mood of fandom and the bad smell that's permeating through Star Wars right now, it's time for some good, healthy, positive news, and that is that Billy Dee Williams is back on board as Lando Calrissian for Episode 9. We were asked by our original source to verify this with another independent source before they ran with it. They did that, and they confirmed this is indeed correct. And before anyone asks, we're not going to name our sources because that's not how it works. Filming on Episode 9 starts next month, so expect to see an official confirmation of this exciting news very soon. Of
1: course, so this makes Billy D. Yes, Billy D. Williams returning the Star Wars of. I I I feel like the filmmakers' hands were a little forced to bring Billy D. Back because there has been resistance to the BDW in the first two films. You could have easily slotted him in into the Last Jedi and had him been the contact that Poe and Finn reach out to. To uh, you know, track down the master code breaker. That could have been Billy D. As a matter of fact, Billy D. Could have been the master code breaker. I mean, Lando Calrissian. Why not? But there was an obvious reluctancy to bring him back because the way the dominoes were falling was: Episode seven was to be Harrison Ford, Han Solo sign off. Episode eight to be Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill's sign off. Last person standing. Carrie Fisher Princess Leia episode 9 was supposed to be her film but of course the, the 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 tragedy of Carrie Fisher's death uh ruined all of those plans so what other legacy character can you tap into to bring in to fill the void of no legacy characters in episode 9 well it doesn't take a mathematician or a NASA scientist to realize Billy D Williams, Lando Calrissian, let's get him back. Obviously, not the direction or the way the dominoes are supposed to fall,
3: but you got to do what you can do to fill that void. Right? They're running out of char- of legacy characters to kill off, so they got to get Lando in there. I mean, who's next? So they Wedge? They promptly dispatch him. Well, hey, you know. <laughs> don't 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 count him out uh don't count him out remember the past must die kill it blow it up well too much stab it in bad. the chest with a in the heart and throw <laughs> it off a bridge and then blow up the planet yeah. i mean if if you really need uh yeah so that that's the, you know that's that's the cynic in me but i i i'm with you i think that they they're going to the bdw well the lando well uh, because they they really didn't have a choice. Uh, they're they're left without these legacy characters. You might be saying, well, "What about three three PO, uh, R two Chewbacca?" I think they're they're around. I mean, we saw uh, various marketing pieces and merchandise out there uh, that features the future of Star Wars, and the future of Star Wars is Ray and Finn and Poe, Chewie, BB eight, and. Sometimes, three PO and R two depends on what you know lunchbox you're looking at. But <laughs> so they, they're in there occasionally. Wait,
1: General Reikian um, isn't uh, on the list? Of, no, 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 no. no, no, Tarr- no, no Nine, no, no, Nine Num now Nine Numb They keep bringing back like he's going to be yeah. doing something in these
3: films. He hasn't done anything in any of these films. And also, I got to see he's this- definitely there. He's definitely there to give that you know original trilogy creature vibe. Um, thank God. Thank I still God think because they need to step that up. They got to step that up. I have to
1: admit, as much as I love seeing Nine Numb in the sequel films, Nine Numb with eyelids kind of weirds me out a little bit. His, his face is too expressive. I mean, yeah. just like the, the, you know, flat looking Nine Numb face. I, I can't recall <laughs> if his, were his eyelids articulate in the original trilogy? They must have been a little bit, right? I,
3: I, I, you know what? I think they, I think they were. Yeah, I do too. But it's, but it, but it, it it's hard to say because you know the Ewoks weren't true until they did the the the, the Blu-ray. Right. And I don't mind that at all. I really don't. I mean, they
1: they they blink. It's fast. It gives more life to those relatively yeah. lifeless m- masks. But with Nine Numb, there was almost a. He was almost more, like, wide-eyed, and then every time I see him in the sequel trilogy, he's got, like, squinty eyes, like he was hanging out with uh, <laughs> with uh, Bob Marley behind the trailer or something, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, uh-huh. he's kind of got that look, and so yeah. I, I, I just, I don't know, I, I, I kind of like the expression on his face in As a Puppet. In Return of the Jedi, but I'm still very happy to see him in the sequel films, because like you said, Jason, it's something that ties us into those alien cultures from the original trilogy or the prequel trilogy. Uh, where there was tons of crossover, obviously Lucas put everything into the stew. When it came to the prequel trilogy In the Phantom Menace, you saw not only new and amazing characters, but you would see the familiar, like the Greedos and the Hammerheads and the Bith, and uh, and even then from uh, films like Jedi, he would have those Clattoos and uh, and uh, all those crazy characters. Um, yeah, even like an Ishi Tib. How about an Ishi right. Tib for the sequel trilogy? Just do, one. Do we have just one? We have an Ishi Tib. Just one. one. Ishi Tib. S- yeah, right. Starfish Wars. But
3: yes. uh, come on. Yes. How about an Ishi Tib? Why not? All right, all right. Before we wrap things up here, I do want to uh, uh, talk about a couple of things here with with respect to the Kelly Marie Tran story about Kelly Marie um, not not leaving Instagram. She did delete her post, but the account is still. There, and a couple of um of ladies who are, are are no strangers to what kelly uh apparently has undergone uh the trolling the harassment all of that have 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 spoken out and I want to share one here this this is uh, a story that was on uh, mashable but um the interview originally took place in the Hollywood reporter, and that is uh Leslie. Jones who starred in the the Ghostbusters remake back in 2016 Ghostbusters 2016 the all female reboot she's also uh, on Saturday night live and she really became the face of online harassment and people were 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 vicious to her and you know as if you know the, the whole idea of this Ghostbusters film whether you 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 know like it or not you know was her idea she's a hired gun she's an actress Comedian and she was uh, Cast in this film and people Were just uh, brutal to her But this is the advice that she gave To Kelly Marie Tran which I thought Was very interesting Uh, because the Hollywood Reporter just came out and asked her do you have any advice For Star Wars Last Jedi Kelly Marie Tran Who is facing uh, the same Kind of harassment as you Um, She says definitely do not Take that blank Personal I would tell Her definitely not to take this Blank Personal it don't have nothing to do with her and I wouldn't have turned off my damn account so uh, She says what I would do is I would screenshot every one of those offensive attacks because when you do they stop doing that blank Trust me, and then you also make Twitter and Instagram responsible for that blank What you're gonna have a public fight club? so you know she's talked about this before and what I appreciate here is that she's saying look the platform itself is also to blame. They let this stuff go on. Uh she says I under- I understand you got free speech, I get it, but there has to be some guidelines when you when you let blank spread like that. So uh you know, and she says what the you know, blank is wrong with people and this honestly is a result of our society being an unhealthy society. Um so I, I agree with uh, Leslie Jones on this on this point um, that you've got to hold the platforms responsible for this kind of stuff. And the fact is, you have to separate the tears from the wheat. You have to separate what is real harassment out there from people who just have a different point of view. And stop assuming that, you know, what is motivating every little tweet and every little Facebook post and stop looking for ghosts and goblins behind all of these things and hidden meanings, because I will tell you one thing about the flamers and the trolls. They're not subtle. Okay, they're not subtle. If they're racist, it's going to be right out there. If they're sexist, it's going to be right out there. So rather than reading into it, they're going to make themselves very apparent. And we do have to hold the platforms, I think, responsible. So the question is, do you engage or don't you engage? Here's another story. This is from Wired, and this is with uh, former Mythbusters host, Carrie Byron. And she was talking about uh, what you do in situations where you're being trolled online. And she says, the minute you engage with the troll... That's when it's going to go bad. Just let it go. No matter how offended you are, let it go. Just if I came into the industry right now, just fresh onto the Internet, I think it would crush my spirits because it can be so vicious. But I started slow with some Craigslisty kind of message boards, and I got to build my way up to being able to ignore the awful people. It's a strange world that you can't handle your characters in movies. She goes. This is just crazy. So, she's talking about you know. There's there's two different tacks here. Uh, she's saying just ignore this stuff, and uh, Leslie Jones takes it a step further and says you know rather than in- engaging, don't take it personally, and let the platform you know. You cap this shot, put this stuff, put it out there. Let everyone know what these creeps are saying about you, and hold the platform. Accountable. I think both pieces of advice are very good, and you know personally, I would like to see Kelly Marie Tran or her publicist, her agent, somebody come out here and put an end to all this speculation. And if she really did leave because of harassment, come out there and say that. Instead of letting people flounder and all of these accusations uh, bounce all around the internet because we still don't have any confirmation that that's the reason that she left. Uh, social media or in this case Instagram and what it's done is it's it's provided this narrative for mainstream journalists to come out and cast this giant ugly shadow over Star Wars fans and I gotta tell you Jim you and I we both we know we've been we've been in the trenches of fandom for a long time been to a lot of conventions and interacted with a lot of different fans and I've never Never met anybody that matches the description of the way that these fans are being depicted. Now, I do see screen caps. I do see evidence of some pretty ugly, vicious people online, but I can't say that they speak for Star Wars fans, even a fraction of Star Wars fans. I
1: just don't see it. Yes, this is very true, Jason. And the thing that really disturbs me a lot about this story is uh, with Leslie Jones, you can find many, many examples online of people who did take screenshots of uh, people impersonating Leslie via social media and doing all kind of crazy stuff. But unfortunately, with the Kelly Marie Tran thing, all we have is a Wikipedia comment, and that's the only thing I've ever actually seen. Now, by me saying this, it doesn't mean I am saying racism doesn't exist, and I'm not saying let's empower racists and give them a platform to speak from. As a matter of fact, I think... If people are watching Kelly Marie Tran's social media so closely, they would have been making a lot of noise about this a long time ago. But all we have is a mysterious Wikipedia comment that a 12-year-old could have made. Anyone could go in and edit Wikipedia at any given time. You don't have to have an account. You don't have to sign in. Whether or not your comments exist for more than a few minutes depends on how closely the mods are watching that site. But Wikipedia itself has been embroiled in controversies in the past. Let me just point out to the fact that they're a website that has an entire web page dedicated to Ayla Secura's breast. OK, so <laughs> I, I don't want to hear about tolerance from Wikipedia. As a matter of fact, that's something I spoke out about them years ago. And they they never did anything but antagonize other fans on social media. I stood with those fans. And a lot of those fans have now turned their pitchforks on us. But, you know, <laughs> that's that's the way the, the ball rolls. That's OK. Yeah. We'll take the bullets Yeah. again. No way. Are we saying that open racism on social media or in face-to-face encounters or anywhere in the world is acceptable or permissible ever? And we are not trying to protect anyone by asking the Star Wars creators to stop feeding the trolls. We are not saying that in order to protect them. On the other side of the coin altogether, we are saying that to take away their power.
3: By feeding the trolls, you are empowering them. One thing I can tell you is that the various social media platforms, they have acquired personalities of their own. And the personality of Twitter is not a good one. It's not a good one. So if you're a a, a journalist out there and you're going to write about the state of the Star Wars fandom in 2018 for sci-fi.com and you're basing it uh, solely on what's going on in the Twitter sphere. You think that's really the best pulse? I see all these stories. What's wrong with fandom? Toxic masculinity, toxic fandom. Star Wars has got a a white male problem. Star Wars has got this problem. And it all comes from Twitter. What about going to the floor of Star Wars Celebration? Go to the floor of Star Wars Celebration and see if you see anything resembling what's going on behind these masked, anonymous, sock puppet, fake, phony, bs accounts run by children go to star wars celebration see if you see any uh examples of that you won't see any of it you know what you'll see you see a bunch of people uh sleeping outside like hobos just to get a glimpse of the next movie that's what you'll see, but you'll also Anybody's... see a
1: warm atmosphere of, of of people from all different races, ages, countries, cities, cultures, all coming together to celebrate. Yes, celebrate their passion for Star Wars. That's all I've ever seen at these events. So um, you know, it's there's there's a lot going on right now, and we've been there we've is. been under attack. People are going after us just for merely voicing our opinions about this stuff. Because we, yep. and the only reason we're talking about, we don't want to talk about this. We want to talk about the color of lightsabers. We want to talk about the latest books and comics. We don't want to be doing this. We don't want to be having this discussion. You think we enjoy this? This is terrible. But this is what's happening in front of us right now. And it's a very scary situation.
3: So anyway, uh, we hope that you know the days of us having to report on this are um, are numbered. I hope so. Um, this is not something that we want to do, but you have to look at reality square in the face. You have to admit there's a problem in order to solve the problem. And, uh, you know, I got to say, I believe Lucasfilm's stance on this is wrong. I think that Lucasfilm is fanning the flames. I think Lucasfilm is uh, aligning themselves with a a, a very narrow uh, sliver of... Uh, of, of people that are more interested in activism and parading around as these, you know, uh, uh, virtuous know-it-alls. And it's it's not it doesn't look good. It's not flattering. And so they've got to fix this. And I believe they will fix it. I think they're on their way to fixing it because you lose 80, 100 million dollars on a movie like they've done with Solo for no other reason. Because I believe Solo is a really great movie uh, and a really great Star Wars movie uh, for no other reason other than a tremendous erosion of trust and you might even say a betrayal of a huge portion of the fan base when they say, hey, you know what, I don't have any obligation to you. I don't owe you anything. We're not actually
1: asking them for anything other than respect <laughs> because I mean it's, it, we're not asking them to to abolish the last jedi we're not asking them to
3: fire anyone we're just asking for respect to the fan base yeah and 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 call it what it is that the Star Wars fan base is what it always has been which is a great community of people that share their passion for a, a central mythology Uh, That was created out of the mind of one guy and that's George Lucas and the rest of them are standing on his shoulders and trying to uh, further this story uh, that we all love so much. And yes, there are a few bad apples out there. There are a few bad actors, but when you when you make them out to be bigger and more powerful than they are by by giving them oxygen by giving them air by giving them publicity then you get this counter movement that wants to come in and 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 play the virtuous hero and it's just it, it leads to to no good it leads to no good and it creates enemies out of people who should be friends and uh, it's just silly. And, and, I, and, I, and I will say, I think that there's a certain portion of of fandom that has been hijacked by people that truly believe that they're Star Wars fans. They want to believe that they're Star Wars fans, um, but they're more interested in what Star Wars can be than what Star Wars has been and is. They want to remake Star Wars. Uh, they want it to fit uh, within their particular uh, very narrow world view. And uh, any objection to that is seen as being closed minded and, uh, you know, lacking in some sort of uh, virtue and and all of that. And, uh, you know, let's hope that it comes to a swift end. I believe that it will. I think we're in just a a cycle and and hopefully uh, wiser heads will prevail and people will sort of uh, give up this. Um, Now, we do have before we uh, before we sign off here, this is an email that we received and we're going to withhold names here for obvious reasons. But it's very, very important that uh, we put this out there because I think it does uh, shed light on some of the problems that are happening. Uh, So email says, uh, hey, Jimmy and Jason, I've really enjoyed your discussion lately on the issue of Star Wars fans and the hateful comments. Of late, it is completely unacceptable. I am a Disney employee, and uh, I don't want to even get into the person's title because uh, I don't want you know folks to uh, uh, come after this person. I don't want to put uh, their job in jeopardy. But let's just say that uh, uh, Jimmy Mack and I uh, put the uh, time and the research to verify that this person is indeed who they say they are. They are a Disney employee and they're not, you know, we're not talking about, you know, the person making hot dogs at one of the parks. Uh, this is someone who is at a senior uh, position. And he says Disney puts every employee from the cast members at the parks to the highest level executives through training annually. That includes how to handle our precious IP harassment and social media policy. These policies must be adhered. By all, no exceptions, and are identical to the DC Comics you outline on your show. So we, uh, Jim and I uh, both shared, uh, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, uh, what social media policy they have over at DC Comics uh, to prevent this kind of thing where you have uh, the, the, the creators and the people behind an IP going out there and waging war against the fans. Uh, They continue why Lucasfilm is not following them or why Lucasfilm is not following them. I don't know. My only guess is that they're relatively new to the company and have yet to be fully synergized. But it is truly sad to see how some who have the privilege to tell Star Wars stories treat the fans they are creating for. Thank you again for your honest look at the state of Star Wars. I should also clarify. I'm not sure how that applies to freelancers, independent contractors, but whether you're a full-time employee or not, you are expected to maintain a high level of professionalism on company-owned social accounts and personal accounts. We represent our company in everything we do. From the office to the grocery store, you will notice that you do not see creators from Disney Animation or Disney live-action studios behaving in this manner online. I truly believe Lucasfilm has not fully adopted the Disney policies. But I'm sure that will be changing really quickly. Thanks again for all you do for the Star Wars community. So uh, I applaud the, uh, you know, the bravery and the sentiment behind this email. Again, we did do our research to verify this person is who they say they are. And uh, it all makes sense. Jim, this is all we're asking for. That's all we're asking for is some level-headedness, some class, some dignity. Let the fans Uh, Fight among themselves for good, for for worse. We'll police ourselves. Mm -hmm. But there needs to be a different road taken by those that are associated with
1: the brand. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're asking for patience. We're asking for professionalism, tact, and respect. Because if respect comes down from the top to all fans, then fans might start acting more respectfully to one another. It all starts at the top. It really does. Well, hey, let's it, let's it, try to go out on some kind of upbeat thing. Do, do we have a voicemail we could listen to or something to
3: get us out of this, 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 this muck we're in? Oh, yeah. Let's see. What do we got here? Uh, how about. Uh... Oh, yeah. How about this? This is Dean. He's a brand new listener to the show. Let's see what he has to say.
2: Hi, guys. Hey, this is Dean Bibb, and uh, I'm a relatively new listener to the podcast. I've been listening to it about six months. Thank you so much for the podcast. It's awesome. Hey, I wanted to uh, acknowledge a scene in Solo, a Star Wars story. It's during the Kessel gunfight, and it's something, they, they filmed something that I don't think any of us have ever seen in any of the Star Wars movies, and it stood out to me. In all of the Star Wars movies, we'll see characters running up the ramp of the Millennium Falcon, or we'll see them getting ready to go down. But we've never seen someone actually walking up through the ramp. And they showed us that in Rebel Force Radio, that great shot of of Han shooting down the ramp, past past the camera, as he walks backwards, you know, up the ramp. That's a shot that we've never seen in any of the, I don't guess, any of the Star Wars media. And I just thought it was really neat, and it stood out to me. And it's actually my favorite visual from Solo, A Star Wars Story. I just wondered what you guys thought about that, if you had thought about it, (laughs) and what your take on it is. I just really think it's a unique shot from a fan standpoint. Anyway, keep up the good work on the uh, podcast. I really enjoyed it. It gets me through my overnight work shifts. So
3: thanks, guys. Take care. Oh, that's the kind of stuff we love to hear. Thank you, Dean. Appreciate it. And uh, don't work too hard. Okay. I will say I, I I did not notice that specific shot, but in general, I felt like there were moments where I was seeing uh, more of the Falcon than I've ever seen before. I really got more of a sense of, uh, you know, how it all lays out. Um, it, it felt more like a place that you could you know, live on. And uh, I did appreciate all the different uh, vantage points that I believe we hadn't seen before. That particular idea of of Han um, sort of fending off uh, the the bad guys and kind of walking up the the ramp. Uh, Jim, is that something that stuck out to you? Do you remember that particular shot? Like
1: you, Jason. And and is it being unique? Well, you know, like you, Jason, I'm seeing things in parts of the Falcon and going into these little places that we've never been in before. But I seem to think that we kind of got a good shot up the ramp at the end of the, the, the last Jedi when Ray turns around and she's having her last vision of Kylo Ren and she closes that ramp. Uh, it might not be exactly like the shot that our, our caller was talking about uh, which I also seem to recall, but I definitely need to go see Solo again. I've I've only seen it twice, so it's here in the the, the neighborhood, like I said. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go and see that film again uh, tomorrow, and I will keep my eyes open for. Uh, Any sort of extra (laughs) cool looks at that ramp. I'll tell you, that ramp up into the Falcon, it sort of means something to me. Because as a kid playing with the Millennium Falcon toy with the action figures, the ramp could lower... And you could have some extended moments there on the ramp. You know, uh, Han, he, oh, Han's yeah. going up the ramp following Joey. And he turns around and you know, opens up his blaster on uh, Greedo and then goes back up the ramp. And so I felt like I was in that environment back then when I was a kid. So to be able to spend a little more time with it, with Alden's Han in Solo, uh, I, I, I I think I can recall the shot he's talking about. But it's just not really part of my memory yet as, as much as the other films are because i haven't seen it 500 times yet so um but you know these are the things that matter to us as star wars fans you know it's not like uh what's your political affiliation on twitter no it's like hey let's (laughs) hang out on the ramp of the falcon for a little while and you know get comfortable here let's you know let's sit down and uh, maybe even have a beer here or something but it's just uh these are the things that really uh, excite me as a Star Wars fan to think about uh, the, the nooks and crannies of the universe and the ramp leading up into the Falcon is definitely one of those places.
2: get us out of here?
3: Well, that's going to wrap things up for this week's show. A uh, huge, huge thanks. Huge thanks to uh, the great John Mark, who uh, really throwing down with some excellent analysis of solo, a star Wars story. So hopefully you can listen to uh, our chat with John and then go see solo once again, at- check it out. And uh, I-, I know I'm going to probably be seeing this with uh, a lot fresher view after hearing his great take and analysis and I gotta confess that was the first time I remember hearing um, Joseph Campbell speak specifically about the character of, of Han Solo knowing now that the Heroes Journey documentary series is on Netflix I gotta go check that, out. it's been a long time uh, since I watched any of that, so I gotta go revisit that, so John definitely inspired me, I hope he inspired all of you uh, if you'd like to support us here and what we do at Rebel Force Radio, there's no better way than through Patreon. You can get access, all access to Rebel Force Radio via Patreon. You'll never miss an episode of our bonus content. We have uh, great programs like RFR Rush Hour, RFR Rewind, RFR Q and A, uh, giveaways, and all kinds of exciting things happening there on Patreon.com/slash. Rebel Force Radio. So please check us out and we thank you so much for your support. Also, uh, we'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that... Nope, not on Twitter. Email us show at rebelforceradio.com That's how we like to communicate and we'll answer you here either uh, on the podcast or uh, via email show at rebelforceradio.com You can also leave us a voicemail 708-320-1737 That's 708-320-1RFR uh, we are on Twitter. You can find us at Rebel Force Radio, uh, at Jimmy Mac Radio, at Jason Swank. Uh, Facebook is also another great place to uh, check us out. You can find us at uh, search for Rebel Force Radio. You'll find uh, breaking news and all kinds of great conversations surrounding this show and Star Wars there on Facebook, the official website. You can check out all of our back episodes and uh, links to. Uh, Rebel Force Radio merchandise, all that can be found at rebelforceradio.com iTunes still remains, I think the most complete repository of podcasts to be found anywhere on the internet, and that includes, of course, Rebel Force Radio, so please subscribe and we'd love to have a review Uh, we have one very simple rule to follow on those reviews, please make them good and you can find Rebel Force Radio streaming at the legendary WGN that's WGNPlus.com, the great legacy radio station there in Chicago. We're also on Spotify. You can find us on Google Play. We're on Stitcher. We're on SoundCloud. And just about anywhere else you can find podcasts. Just do a search for Rebel Force Radio. And you can find us uh, popping up weekly with our show updates at JediNews.co.uk, uh, Tracks, and the official Star Wars website at StarWars.com. So that's going to do it for us. Uh, thank you all so much. We love you all. Thank you for your support. And we'll see you next time here on Rebel Force Radio. For RFR, I am Jason. And I'm Jimmy Mack. And
2: remember... Force will be with you always.